Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. My guest today is one of those rare all-arounders in climbing, truly an expert at everything from bouldering to climbing peaks in the Himalaya and basically anything that we call climbing he is exceptionally good at. Josh Wharton is my guest. Josh is a total badass and a total dark horse. He keeps pretty quiet, so I wouldn't be surprised if you've never heard of him. But he really is well accomplished across the full climbing spectrum. He's bouldered as hard as V11, sport climbed 14B. He's done the first ascent of hard alpine routes like Azim Ridge, which is a grade 7 511 on Trango Tower. He was part of the second free ascent of the Southeast Ridge, or the compressor route of Cerro Torre in 2016. He's speed climbed the Eiger, and he's done just about every route in the Black Canyon, which is something we talked a little bit about. Anyway, Josh's resume is very broad and very impressive. One of the topics I was most interested in diving into with him was how all of his disciplines connect, how he balances them, and what he's learned from each discipline that has contributed to him being a better climber in other disciplines, whether being so well-rounded has helped him or made it more difficult to become as strong as he's become. I was really interested in exploring that, and Josh had a lot of really thoughtful answers. He's a super analytical guy, and I can tell Josh puts a lot of thought into his climbing. I was also curious about flashing and on-sighting. When I first met Josh, I got to watch him do a 13A first try right in front of me, one that I was working on at the time, and I was really impressed with his composure and confidence, and that's something we talked about. He shared some of his tips and tricks for on-sighting. Josh is also a dad, and we talked about risks and how his tolerance for risk has changed as a parent. And we talked about the value of taking risks in climbing and what that can teach us about assessing risks in life. Anyway, I loved this conversation and I think the conversation got better and better as we went along. Uh, one last thing I'll note is that Josh had a guy painting his house during this conversation, and you'll hear that pop up a couple times. About 20 minutes in, we actually had to relocate from his living room to his training dojo out in the garage, and I totally failed at making a smooth transition. So it's just kind of a quick cut from one scene to the next, but we pick up right where the conversation left off and carried on from there without too much more distraction. We also talked about how Josh is training for a flash attempt of the Freerider later this fall. He's planning to fly out to Yosemite on November 1st. So if you're listening to this before then, send him all the good juju in the world and wish him luck. And it'll be exciting to check in with him and see how it goes. I'll be sure to report back with you guys when November comes around and I know more. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, and please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with professional climber and all-around badass Josh Wharton. Um, for the mic, try to maintain like a hands distance, okay. something like that. 
Good. I've had some really good climbers be like, do you not have mic stand? Like, Jonathan didn't want to hold the mic because he was afraid he was going to get pumped. <laughs> He's like the most fit person, the most fit rock climber that I've interviewed so far, you know? I mean, it kind of makes sense because he probably takes it the most seriously. Everybody, <laughs> exactly. So. exactly. He said rest day. He meant rest day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But he's like, he's like, I don't know, man. Can we, is there anything we can do? And I, we, sit, we sat at his table and I have a little mic stand that I was able to, to use for him. Okay. Yeah, but, I'm probably not worried about getting pumped. Maybe more like tendonitis issue at my age. <laughs> the elbow lock off. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you, Josh? 42. 42. Yeah. Are you still improving? Um. Yes and no. I think physically I've sort of plateaued a bit, but I think I've gotten a little bit like tactically and technically better. Okay. You know, especially in the last... Five years. It's kind of like I had a way more organic approach to my climbing up until really up until my daughter was born, which is 2014. Yeah. And then I kind of stepped back a little bit and tried to take a more sort of like dedicated approach up to my training aspect, like sort of got more specific. And so I saw a pretty good physical bump at that time. Okay. But, and that lasted a couple of years and now it's sort of like, oh yeah, yeah, you have to put lots of time and energy in if you want to climb 514. Yeah. You know, it's not just easy for me. <laughs> that's so, good to hear. Yeah. That makes me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Is that's, that's one thing I wanted. There's like two things with you that interest me the most that I want to dive into. And that'll, I'm sure that'll lead to all sorts of different rabbit trails. But <clears throat> the first one is, and they're, they're connected, but with someone as, as much of an all-rounder who's as good at so many different facets, all the facets of climbing, you're still better at me than sport climbing. I'm like, man, what gives with that? You know, because like very often when someone's really well-rounded, they're like, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I do these gnarly things in the mountains and I like climbing ice and I wear crampons for half the year, but then they're not like climbing 514, you know? Mm-hmm. They're climbing 512 or they're content to be able to do long 511 all day sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but you're so good at all of it. And it makes me just, it begs this question for me, like, what are the rest of us missing? <laughs> well, I think in the States, the geography kind of lends towards specialization because there isn't a good place to live where you have like all the different genres of climbing, you know, at a high level. Um Versus Europe, there's a lot more very well-rounded climbers. Like in Europe, it's pretty common to encounter alpine climbers who also climb 513 or 514. Mm. Or in the States, that just not isn't a common thing. Because if you think about it, outside of maybe the front range and the east side of the Sierra, there's really nowhere you can live where you're going to put crampons on, but also have access to good sport climbing, good bouldering. Yeah. Um, I think I learned to climb a long time ago, and my dad was a climber, so sort of was introduced to climbing in this kind of like, you know, soloing is a thing, ice climbing is a thing, rock climbing is a thing. You know, every genre was part of what we called climbing. Whereas now it's really easy for people to just be, oh, I just boulder, mm. or I just sport climb. And so for that reason, I just sort of organically through the years enjoyed all of it. And so tried to get as good as I could at each one. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I guess the the biggest question, and we don't have to tackle this now. I want to come back to it, actually. Um, I have a message from someone that I want to read that'll be a good lead-in for it. But 
you know, it, it begs this question for me, like, are you really good at all of these things despite dividing your time? Or is there some, is that the thing, you know, is the, is the variety, is the changing it up and mixing it up? Has that been a key component of, of getting so good? Um, well, I think like most people, I probably spend 90% of my time sport climbing. Okay. You know, realistically. Okay. Because the things like alpine climbing, you need a lot of experience early. Like you need a ton of experience to like figure out the systems and figure out how to do it and get good at risk assessment. But then once you've learned that stuff, it's a little bit like riding the bike, you know, like you can go back and recreate it. Whereas rock climbing is not like that. Like if hmm. you don't go rock climbing for a year, your first day back, you're going to suck. Right. Yeah. And, um, that's not the case for lots of other forms of climbing, like ice climbing and alpine climbing. If you have a good mental game, which I've always tended to have a pretty strong mental game, like I'm pretty good at sort of making objective judgment calls about what might be dangerous or like what risk I'm willing to take at a certain time. And that's what's really useful in, in big mountain stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, I want to circle back to that, but the other, the other, half of the fascination I have with someone like you, which is connected is like, there's a couple people that I've talked to that are, maybe I would put in a similar category as you, you know, like Mikey Schaefer comes to mind. Mm -hmm. He does all the things and Mikey has sport climbed and he's bouldered, but you know, a lot of his sport climbing is like at index and Smith and then his bouldering is like at Bishop. So he doesn't necessarily know in my, I'm picking on him of course, but I don't think he really knows how fun rock climbing can be, but you like climbing rifle and you've bouldered in the park and you have like a moon board and a tension board in your dojo here. So like, you know how fun it can be. Yeah. So like, why do you still do all this other stuff? Well, I don't do it as often as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a time like when I was, you know, maybe in my early, late teens, early twenties, where like, I want to do every route in the Black Canyon. And you know, 90% of those roots are terrible. They're just junk. They're like choss and pricker bushes and you know, loose rock. But I was just like mad for it. And I was just kind of a consumer with my climbing. Like I kind of got off on ticking stuff off, you know, mm. like I was like, I'm going to do every route here. Um, and as a result of that, I got just a huge volume of experience. And but then as I've gotten older, I've sort of gotten more picky, a bit snobbier about climbing. And so now I travel all over and I'm, you know, where are the five-star routes in the guidebook? These are the ones I want to do. Mm. I'm not, I'm going to do every route at the crag anymore. So that sort of changed. But as a result of my earlier approach, I have a big breadth of experience. I mean, when I lived in Rifle, I literally climbed every route in the canyon to 13B. Wow. Every route. And that was, you know, like we took the weed whacker out to get to some of those routes, you know? <laughs> so, and that was just like something enjoyed to just like try and let's do every one. Cause I thought you could learn a lot more from doing more routes than you could from necessarily like always trying to just send a particular project. I think you become mm. a more well-rounded climber with more volume than you do with, okay, I want to climb, you know, I just climbed 13C, I want to climb 13D. I don't think that's necessarily always the path to being a better climber. You think the the volume in those easier grades, all those obscure routes and rifle and the black, do you think that did serve the higher end climbing for you? Like yeah. I think it gives you sort of like 
a big uh, sort of library of movement and experience that you don't get. If you, I mean, I used to always be shocked at rifle how someone would be able to red point a 13D but couldn't onsite a 12A to save mm. their life. You know, that's a really common occurrence. I don't know if it is anymore, but at the time that was a really common thing in rifle. Mm-hmm. People who would just sort of like uber lokes who would spend the summer there and project forever. Uber lokes. You know, but that's couldn't great. couldn't really climb that well if they went anywhere else and got on anything else. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, what I really wanted to do, my aspirations were big alpine rock routes in faraway places. And what's really important on those routes is being able to onsite and climb quickly. Because, you know, in the Trango Valley, you're not gonna wanna be up there working on some pitch. You wanna do it quickly and onsite. And there's not gonna be chalk and ticks and things all over it. Mm -hmm. So getting better at reading rock and getting better at onsiting and lots of volume was what I saw as the way forward to improve that kind of stuff. Well, that has certainly worked. That's something I wanted to ask you specifically about. I was going to save it for later, but uh, that's kind of a perfect lead in. I'm impressed by all the climbing that you do, but I am, I, I think because it's more related to what I'm interested in in my own climbing and what I'm aspiring to become better at, I'm really interested in your flashing and on sighting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you flashed 13D. Is that right? Yeah, I would say I've flashed one that got downrated to 13C. So now okay. I've, uh, but I've flashed a handful of 13Cs. Yeah. I'll say a handful of 13Cs. And like normally when you hear that, that's coming from someone who routinely climbs 14 plus, you know, 14C yeah. or there's, there's usually like a number kind of number grade between their red pointing mm-hmm. and, and their flashing. But it seems like you're very consistent at a level very near your, your red point limit. Actually, when we met at uh, Crazy Woman, we were we were climbing near Ten Sleep last mm-hmm. summer, and uh, I was climbing with my friend Yasna, and I was trying this 13A, and it took me like all of two days. I think it took me like nine tries in two days, and I had to mm-hmm. really just learn it down to be able to squeeze it out, and I barely did it. And you were hanging out with your kid, your your daughter. You you made a swing for her, and it just seemed like you were having a fun day, and then. <laughs> I just watched you step up to this route and just go into focus mode and turn it on. And you flashed it so confidently. Like there was no, it looked like there was no point at which there was a chance you were gonna come off the wall. It was just like execution well within your ability. And it really made an impression on me. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, all those roots in the black, all the roots in rifle and just building this vocabulary of of movement, that makes sense to me that that would lead into it. But I'm, I'm curious what else you would attribute to flashing and on sighting. And I'd love to dig into like your mindset when you're preparing for. So I really enjoy flashing and on sighting, which I think is helpful because you're always like, you know, you always get better at things you enjoy, right? You know, Um, and I enjoy it because I love being on that moment in a route where you're like fighting without expectation. You know, you do, you're going for the next hold, not knowing whether it's going to be good or bad and, and really digging. Um, and I think that some of that's lost when you're red pointing because you have some expectation. You're like, oh, I'm super pumped. I know the next hold's not very good. I'm going to fall. Mm. Whereas on sighting and flashing, you can often get into this moment where you're like, I have no idea. And that can, and for the next 10 moves, you can barely stick the move. So I really love that because you're really in the moment and there's no like internal dialogue at all. I think, uh, 
like I've learned tricks for onsighting flashing through the years, like really looking at the root from the ground and thinking about like thumb chalk to kind of read whether it's a left or a right hand um, and little tricks like that and getting beta from people, but also sort of like reading between the lines when people give you beta based on what, you know, their subjective opinion is going to be like mm. based on their experience. Like a lot of times when people give you flash beta, it's kind of about what is going on for them. Sure. Not what's actually best necessarily. And then I think you're onto it right as well that the biggest thing about onsighting and flashing is climbing with a lot of confidence and just believing that you can do it and just trying as absolutely as hard as you can in the circumstance that requires it. You know, don't try hard when the holds are big, but then when it gets, when the holds get smaller, you get to the crux, try as hard as you can. Mm. Um, and a lot of people just don't climb with that full confidence, full all in when they're going for it is my experience just watching people at the crag in general. Um, How does one cultivate that? Um, I think just doing it on a regular basis. Okay. I think that a lot of people, at least in the modern climbing scene, I think that on sighting and flashing gets less respect than hard red pointing and also like has a little more stress. Like people like the idea of red pointing because it's all knowns, right? There's not mm. any unknowns, you know? So you sort of know what's up there, you know, come back. You sort of like only get one shot when it comes to an onsider flash. So there's sort of like a stress level that some people don't love. Um, but I think like trying to do it, you know, on a regular basis or every day out um, is really useful over time. And also if you try to, you know, it might look like I onsite and flash 513s all the time, but if you're trying a hundred of them and you do 20, like to someone else, you're like, oh, wow, you flashed onsite 25 13s, but I, well, I tried a hundred. So mm. it wasn't like it was that <laughs> consistent. Mm. Um, it's also been funny too, as a dad, it's a, it's a nicer way to climb as a parent because like projecting a hard route isn't super fun for the family. Mm. You know, like my wife's belaying me, I'm a different hour, <laughs> getting the nuances, like lower me seven inches, like go up, kiddos bored on the ground. Um, whereas onsite flash, it's like, I'm just gonna go all in, try as hard as I can. And then, oh, I either did it or I don't. And mm. then it's back to like family time, you know? So it's kind of a, a better way to sport climb as a dad, I think. And That's, you go to more crags and yeah. all that stuff. That's cool. How important is it to you to send the routes? Like, let's say you go for a 13A, 13B, 13C, whatever. Oh, yeah, reasonably makes, close, you don't That do makes me try. think of some other things um, that have been useful. So I stopped about six or seven years ago when I started to try to climb 514 more regularly. Like I was always, when I just had like a ton of five. 13s, but I'd only climbed a handful of 514. I, I sort of made a conscious decision that I'm going to stop always trying to red point routes that I know that I could do within mm. a couple of tries. So I'd try to onsite or flash 13A or 13B. And if I didn't do it and it was a route that I'm like, mm, I would probably do this next go or in a couple tries, I just wouldn't try again. Mm. I wouldn't be like attached to red pointing it. And as a result, I started to get way more flash and onsite tries in and stop sort of wasting time just to tick a box 
of red pointing a root, you know, just because my ego would be feel better about it. Right. Um, and started spending more time, like when I was actually going to put multiple efforts into something, spend that on harder climbs, you know, okay. or harder for me climbs. So that's, yeah. <clears throat> and then another little trick I'd say too, like that's super useful that I've adopted a lot that I'd forgotten to tell you about is when I fall off oftentimes, wherever I fall to, I just sort of start retrying to flash or onsite from there. Mm. So, and that'll like sort of decide too, whether I'm going to try a route multiple times. So let's say I climb a route and I fall off at two thirds height at the crux, make a mistake and I fall down 10 or 15 feet. I just rest a minute and then pull back on and try to re continue on sighting or flashing to the top of the route. Overlapping and, that. Yeah. Overlapping that section. Yeah. And that gives me a sense, okay, is this route really hard for me? Or did I just make a sense or make a mistake or B, um, you know, it gives me an idea of like, uh, more time in that space of trying really hard, more time of like experience of what onsighting or flashing is like on the route. So I think that's a useful, a really useful trick to like yeah. approach a day at the crag. You're getting like double the practice on one yeah. track. Yeah. Instead that's of cool. going into like, okay, I'm going to work it, work every move from here to the top. You totally. Know, that's, what, down. Yeah. that's what I do. I, whenever I do try to flash or onsite, when I fall, if I fall, <clears throat> I immediately go into like hang dog, sort everything out mode. Like, mm -hmm. okay, now I'm going to be as efficient with my energy mm -hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. Which is great if you're trying to do it second go, but yeah, yeah way less practice. Yeah. That's cool. And that sort of is dictated by the area, right? If you're at a crag that has three roots and that's the only route of the day, then obviously <laughs> you should go into the work at second mode and do it. But mm. if you're in Spain and there's 50 amazing 8As to go at, you don't have to take that approach. Mm. You, know, you can just move on to the next one. That's interesting. So if you were in Spain and you had tons of routes of the same grade to try, would you still go up to the top of the route? Like, would you still pull back on for that kind of second flash try? Or would you just save your energy and, and move I'd on? I'd probably pull back on, but it sort of depends on the route too. So okay. Like, is it a pleasant route to her? You know, did I fall like right at the very top or did I fall low or did I fall in the middle? You know, just sort of depends on the circumstance. There's no hard and fast rule to any of it. Okay. Yeah. Another thing I'm always interested in is like how you would combine trying to flash her on site with red pointing. Like if you did have a project, do you mix those things within the same day? Um, do you keep them separate? And then if you do mix them, which do you do first? You know, like, I, cause I've, I like the idea of trying to like on site five twelves before I try my five thirteen whatever project. Mm -hmm. um, but I've blown some days that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I think, again, it kind of depends on the trip, depends on the circumstance, depends on how much time you have. There's so many variables. Like, I don't, I don't think there's a, a hard and fast rule. I do think that a good way to approach a trip, if you want to do, like, let's say you're going to Syriana for a month and you want to try to do one hard route, but you also want to climb a bunch and just have fun trying on site and flash things, then I'd probably approach that with like day one work on the project day two, go and do a bunch of onsighting and flashing, rest day, repeat mm. until you're tired and need two rest days. I think that's just sort of a good standard approach. Okay. Yeah. You tend to, I think in, honestly, you tend to climb a little better when you're a bit tired because 
you put more weight into your feet mm. and you're a bit more relaxed. So I think it's a little better to try the onsighting flashing when you're a little tired than it is mm. at the start, you know, when you're got a little more power and stuff, you might tend to over grip. So in a, in a red pointing mode, that's better because you're familiar with the route and you can sort of say like, okay, I don't need to over grip, or this is a section of the route where I want to climb as delicately as I can or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. That there's a lot of good stuff in there. That gives me some things to to think about. Nice. Um, as far as all the different things that you do in climbing, though, you know, talking about having your daughter now and being a little bit less interested in, in doing as many things, mm -hmm. is that really true? Like it seems, it seems like you still have goals across the whole spectrum. I'd just love to hear how you oh, how no, you think painter, about that. The painter's painting. The painter, the... though. <laughs> painter's painting. We might have to move. Should we move out to the garage? Can we do a stop? Um, yeah, maybe. Like, it's going to be like that sound for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not easy to work with. <laughs> okay, I think I was asking you, how do you think about your climbing these days and what you want to do with your climbing? You know, you're... I think you were asking me sort of in relation to, like, is it not true that is it true that I really just want to do rock climbing or do I still want to do everything else? It's just that life has changed a little bit being yeah. a dad and stuff. And and that's totally true. Like part of being a good parent is being present, right? And and uh, going to the Karakoram is a six week trip minimum if you want to give yourself a good chance of climbing something interesting. And that just like, A, I don't want to do it because I don't want to be away from my daughter for that long. And B, I just don't think it would be super fair to her either. Um, so I've kind of, as I say, yeah, upped my rock climbing effort um, in the last, since she was born and kind of focused on more technical things that are more accessible, closer to home. And just tried to push that while I can, while there's still sort of ability to improve there and the hopes that, you know, eventually probably I'll wind up going back to the Himalaya and the Karakoram and doing bigger mountain things, but those are sort of easier to do when you're in your fifties than mm. they might be the, than the hard rock things. So, Coming back to the riding your bike idea from earlier that you mentioned, do you feel like that focusing on rock climbing is actually the best way to improve with that other stuff? Yes and no. Um, I think there's a certain comfort level to time in the mountains but and it's also like not necessarily true that being a really good technical climber makes that much difference when you go mm. do big mountain climbing it helps but oftentimes lots of the climbing is pretty easy define easy um well it's hard to define easy as a rock climber because easy as in you're going up some big snow slope and it's like there's an aerobic fitness component and there's some basic movement component but it's not hard in the sense like can i do the next move mm -hmm. um it might be hard mentally in the sense you're really tired you might say oh, i want to turn around or this section's annoying because the snow's thigh deep or something like that or things like that um and so the physical aspect helps there because it gives you some strength you know it's like that's kind of a big piece of it, but um, yeah, there's a big, a big more mental gain to that. It's kind of interesting, like it's such a different 
even though there's a rope and a harness involved, it's kind of like a different thing entirely. Like it's not the same support. And I always think it's sort of funny and like on podcasts and in the climbing media that some people are talking about rock climbing also think they can talk about high-end alpinism as if they know what they're talking about. Mm. Cause they can't really, you can't really relate. Like it's totally different. Like it's a totally different experience. Not that one's like better or worse. They're just different things. And so it's really, and it's really hard to know just in the way, like if you're working on a problem called Eternia, like I've been on, done that problem. So I really know the minutia, like I know what's involved. I know it's like big holds, bicep, out of roof, toe hook finish. Like I know that the details in a way that if you described it to somebody else, like you couldn't truly relate it to them. Mm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's like really true in alpine climbing. So for somebody who hasn't really been up there and experienced what it's like to be, you know, super cold and hungry and have it be nasty weather and be really strung out and what that dynamic is with your partner and all those things that come into it, it's really hard to sort of just relate that experience mm. in the same way that those people totally couldn't understand like why you get off on climbing out this 10 foot rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I get that. I mean, it does seem like Eternia is just more objectively fun than being strung it out on the is, side of the mountain. It is, but somebody who plays terrible. golf or basketball would say, <laughs> what do you mean it's more objectively fun? You hiked for two hours, you dragged 50 pounds of pads, <laughs> you know, you fell on your back. Like what's objectively fun about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's a point of, it's a point of view. And it is true that the movement aspect of rock climbing, I think is more objectively type one fun than alpinism, but that those like alpinism and adventure climbing has like sort of a longer lasting, or at least for me, you re- you remember it for a longer time. It's like sort of more rewarding in a way. And it also has a really strong team component to it mm. that, and friendships come out of that and partnerships come out of that, that rock climbing, especially the way rock climbing is done now, doesn't have anymore where you just sort of climb with whoever mm. is at the crag or go bouldering with whoever. And you're sort of like, yeah, it's great if they're a friend and stuff, but sort of just like, hey, I need someone to hold the rope. <laughs> um, and that's that's something that's changed a lot in climbing. And that's something I really value and love about doing long routes and doing adventurous routes is those connections you make with the person you're climbing with. Mm. It feels like a team sport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I uh, I watched you sent me some stuff to to kind of catch up on um, because you're a private person like you don't have a social media presence really you, you don't really talk about a lot of these things you do too much but some of it's been captured on films and in articles and whatever else and I watched a short film called Alpine Lessons in the Canadian Rockies it was you doing uh, Emperor Face on Mount Robson and the Wild Thing on Mount Sheffron Kefron Kefron. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one line from you in that that caught my interest. You just said, everything is training and nothing is training. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and what you meant by that. Mm. Well, I think in the context of that trip, I meant that summer I was going to the Karakoram to try to climb a mountain called Latok. 
And I saw that Canadian Rockies trip as training for that trip, but it turned out we had some good weather and conditions. And I had, I would actually call that trip probably the best 10 days of alpine climbing I've had in my life. Wow. Cause I climbed Robson, Kefren, and um, the North face of Temple in yeah, like nine days and had just super adventures with forced bivvies and all sorts of stuff and just like wild out there um, nine days with a bunch of different partners who were all good friends and just was like completely beat down and worked after that nine days, you know, like drove home completely satisfied, like didn't want to do anything else. And, um, and so that was one of those training trips that actually turned into like one of the best Alpine trips I've ever had and did some really cool stuff. And I, I sort of realized on that, that was the first time I'd done any bigger Alpine objectives in the Canadian Rockies. And it, one of my realizations and takeaways from that trip was that you don't have to fly off to somewhere sexy like Alaska or Patagonia or the Karakoram mm. to have a really big adventure and to find something really challenging. Um, and I think we sometimes get like caught up in that sort of groupthink mentality, like, oh, it has to be Saratore to be rad. Mm. Um, and it turns out like in the Canadian Rockies is a perfect example of this, like very few people alpine climb there. And so there's very little beta. A lot of the routes have been, you know, one or two ascents. The climbing is really serious because the rock's often super bad. Right. And because there's not a big, you know, big like beta pool to draw from, the routes feel like huge adventures. You can't call up somebody and say, oh, what were the conditions like last week? Versus when you're climbing in Shell 10, you can be like, oh, you were up in the Torrey Valley last week. What was it like? You know, what's this weather forecast relate to what we're going to get? And the Canadian Rockies, you like don't have that reference point exactly down because there's just not a pool of knowledge there. Um, so I just learned a lot that trip about like what it meant to have a good adventure and what it meant to be challenging, that that wasn't always necessarily related to what the larger herd might think, mm. you know? Is it just those things? I mean, I'm curious, would you call those good routes? Like, were they enjoyable to climb? Were they? Some of them are really good. Like Wild Thing has some amazing climbing on it. Okay. It this ice, the finish of it's like an ice goulette in the back of this super deep chimney going up the middle of a really steep mountain. So it had some really cool mixed and ice climbing on it. Um, but no, like none of it's like pitch to pitch, you know, you're never like, you know, it's not like a, you know, ooh, I'm at Seyus. Look at this beautiful blue streak with amazing movement. No, that's not what those experiences are about. They're sort of like challenges with your partner and adventures. And it's not about like the move to move or the quality pitch to pitch. And that's why I say it's it's such a hard thing to relate to someone who hasn't mm. done that because to you, you're just like, well, that just sounds crazy. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> like why would you want to go torture you're yourself like, it's that awesome way? Because the rock's terrible. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's sort of just relevant to the genre of climbing and like the experience you're after. Yeah. You know, like I would, when I'm going rock climbing for quality, I would never say, oh, let's go seek out the chossiest route. But if I'm going for like a huge adventure, then the rock quality doesn't matter as much. Mm. Um, it's also true too, that when you climb with crampons and ice tools, chossy rock is not nearly as big a deal as it is with mm. with rock climbing. Yeah. So, Do you feel like people in that community 
recognized your achievement? Like recognized, did, did you feel like people were um, recognizing the significance of your trip in the way that, that you did, you know, saying that this was like your best nine or 10 days of alpine climbing of your climbing career? Well, I think some people did recognize that, but there's only about, you know, probably 20 people that uh-huh. <laughs> had any point of it. reference. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's funny at the time I had one of the coolest experiences, um, having dinner with Barry Blanchard after that week of climbing and sat down and had dinner with him and we we're just chatting. And he's like, oh, so what'd you get up to the last week where you're here 10 days? And I told him and he looked at me point blank and said, it took me 30 years to climb all those walls. Wow. And that was a super cool experience because that buries somebody that I have huge respect for and sort of inspiration in that Canadian Rocky scene. And he's one of the few people that could relate to mm-hmm. all that. He climbed all that stuff before. So he knew what all those routes were about and how serious or not serious they were and all those things. Mm. And so that was a really cool kind of experience that you wouldn't have with anybody else really. I mean, just a handful of people. Okay, we've kind of been talking about this the whole time, but I'm going to read something that I got from our mutual friend, Jonah. Okay. I reached out to him before uh, before this conversation just to see if he had questions for you. And mm-hmm. um, he put words to the thing that I was really curious about, uh, given how well-rounded you are in your own climbing. And, and Jonah writes, Josh is one of the most driven and accomplished climbers in all disciplines I can think of not to mention one of the most giving and kind guys out there. Getting to interview someone who is an expert in all the facets of climbing, I'm curious what each discipline has taught him about being an all-around climber. Has alpinism taught him a thing or two about sport climbing? Has ice climbing showed him tricks for sending hard boulders? Uh, Most climbers are solely focused on one or two disciplines, for example, bouldering and sport climbing. I wonder if we're missing out on valuable lessons from other kinds of climbing. I'm also interested in what climbing has taught him about life, bigger picture stuff. Um, let's save that last sentence for for later, but yeah, I wonder if we're missing out on any valuable lessons from other kinds of climbing. That's kind of at the heart, that gets to the heart of my curiosity talking to someone mm-hmm. like you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say... Well, I've already brought up the partnerships thing. I think that sport climbers and boulders are are missing out on that aspect of climbing a little bit and increasingly so. Just because climbing's gotten so popular, there's so many people doing it. You know, when I started going to school at CU, when I really started climbing in 96, 97 in Boulder, I had, you know, my freshman year, I met two partners and I valued those people like nobody else because they were my access to go climbing, right? They were the only people I knew um, to go climbing. And that's just like completely changed, right? Now you could find a partner in 10 minutes for whatever you want to do, basically. Um, And so that's changed a lot. So I think, yeah, to encourage people to value their partnerships with people and use climbing as resource for that. Um, I think sport climbing and bouldering have taught me a lot about training and about working towards specific goals. And that crosses over into alpinism, you know, like sort of how you approach preparing for some objective and all the nitty gritty detail and effort that goes into that beforehand. Um, 
ice climbing definitely won't teach you anything about boulder <laughs> i kind of thought so i'm relieved to hear you say that too <laughs> um yeah and i think uh going and having some good adventures um like doing adventure climbing like in the black canyon or in yosemite or whatever is something that um people can take away like getting outside it doesn't always have to be out like climbing a specific route or climbing a specific area it can be more about the experience um i'm trying to think about but they all sort of yeah they all are just very different but also feed into each other at the same time too mm. you know they're all really i think i've been really lucky doing all of them that it is a really good um source of motivation mm. It's really easy if you just sport climb all the time and are just always sort of doing the same thing, albeit like in a different place to just sort of like get in this rut mode where, you know, it's like the experience is sort of the same, like the route might be different, but experience. But to have that variety really has been helpful for me to like cl basically climb full time for the last 20 years because there's always like some switch up and then I come back to sport climbing after a trip somewhere and I'm terrible at it. And so I get that fun progression for the, the next gains. few months. Yeah, yeah. And the same thing goes for alpine climbing. Like had a cool experience this spring where I was trying a project out in St. George, actually climbing with Jonah. Okay. And did a route out there, a hard route that I, for me that I wanted to do. Um, what was it? I'm, um, I spent time there, I'm curious. God, what is the name? It's the 14B. Is this the one at Black and Tan? Oh, yeah, Old World Lullaby. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nice. That one, and was out there climbing Jonah, and then like met this guy, younger climber from the Salt Lake area, Jackson Marvel, and we did a new re on um, Wheeler Peak, which is this big, giant Choss nightmare thing <laughs> that you would totally love uh, <laughs> in Eastern Nevada that was like just a rad adventure and okay. super cool and like totally different, you know? And that was a super fun week with two incredibly different experiences with people. Mm living their lives in very different ways, but both of them were really cool in their own way and learned a lot from that, so. What was the name of that one? You said Wheeler Peak? Yeah. Can you, I, I you have an article in Gripped about it and I just kind of skimmed through it. Um, can you paint a scene from that experience? Is Is there like any moment or day or anything that you can just describe to kind of help someone like me who's never done anything like that? Just give me a glimpse into, into that experience. Mm. Well, to relate specifically to you, you've probably climbed like a lot of Western slope choss, like at rifle. Mm -hmm. You know how you climb up those like loose blocky uh, to the first or second bolt as you go through the <laughs> choss band? Uh huh. So imagine that but there's snow on all of it. You're wearing ice, you've got crampons on, ice tools in your hands, it's super cold and there's no bolts. Mm. That's kind of what it's like. Like not very hard, but kind of serious. Yeah. Like definitely some skills involved. Um, it's the kind of thing where the difference between leading and following is huge. Mm. So like, I could very comfortably take you out mixed climbing in the winter and you would probably as a, such a good rock climber 
on your first day follow quote unquote hard pitches mm. without a big deal. But if you led them, you would probably cry a little bit, you know, like it For would be sure. a totally different story. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what it's like. And Wheeler Peak was just actually wound up to be both Jackson and I, it's kind of this like off the radar thing because it's in the middle of nowhere. It's a little bit west of Ibex. Okay. Um, in Great Basin National Park. And the East Face Cirque kind of looks like the Diamond Cirque, but it's all quartzite and it kind of has this like stacked block house of cards feel to it. Oof. So the rock itself is actually good, like not like dirt in your eyes bad, like we think <laughs> of as rock climbers, you know, like, but it's just all sort of loosely adhered in an unpredictable way. Yikes. So for instance, on one pitch I was leading, putting in a cam and the let the small, you know, one foot by two foot ledge I was standing on just completely gave way. Oh. And luckily like <laughs> held myself by the tool. Um, and so, yeah, there, and that is not the kind of experience like you want to have all the time. You know, like it's kind of a dangerous. That's the kind of experience I never want. Well, then fair enough. Yeah, it's not for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And there were moments where I wasn't sure I wanted to be having that experience either, for sure. But I mean, that kind of stuff is really somehow in that long, long term, super memorable, right? Like I totally remember that and had a like formed a really good friendship with Jackson on that wall and had a great adventure up there. And I was actually really happy to be climbing with Jackson because he's doing way more of that sort of climbing than I am these days. And he led more of the route than I did. And I was happy to have a young buck along to put the rope up on occasion. So, um, but yeah, that was a cool thing. And it's sort of like, in a lot of ways, unexpected, like just sort of wanted to go see what it was like and all about. And it turned out to be really cool. Um, yeah, how does an objective like that come to be? Or how does that adventure come well, to be? Well, that adventure place? came to be out of COVID, really. Okay. I didn't really get a chance um, to do much uh, alpine climbing in the last couple of years since the pandemic started. Like a lot of the things, at least at this point in my alpine climbing that are interesting are kind of far away. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's cool stuff to do in Rocky Mountain National Park and things like that, but it's not as inspire me or as interesting to me as things that are bigger and more far flung. So I was just trying, really that idea came up as like, just trying to look for something that I could drive my car to, Mm. you know, that wasn't far away. And much like the Canadian Rockies, it was another good realization that you can have those sorts of adventures if you kind of look outside the box without getting on an airplane, without following the steps that people that you sort of like think you need to, you know? How was that even on your radar? Is that like a face um, you've heard whispers about? Or? Yeah. Um, a friend of mine from years ago, Kyle Dempster, who passed away sadly, um, I don't know, a little while ago now, but uh, he um, used to go out and sort of acclimate before trips to Pakistan on that mountain. It has mm. some, has a big east facing wall. And then there's kind of like a gully on either side of the wall that in the springtime form into like these sort of melt freeze ice roots. And so those roots had been done, not a lot, but some, and Kyle used to go climb those roots as a, to acclimatize and get some Alpine spring tune up in. And so I kind of knew a little bit about it. And then, 
Um, there's a guidebook that James Garrett had done that has that area in it that's to Ibex and stuff. And there are no roots on the actual main wall, mm. probably for good reason. Um, so it was just like an obvious kind of unclined objective that looked challenging, but didn't really have any sense of what it really would be like. Mm-hmm. Man, I'll uh, I'll link to your article for people that want to read the whole write-up on it. Um, this is going to feel like a little bit of a right turn, but I want to ask you more about the black. And I actually got, I have a handful of listener questions for you, and I got a really good one from Timothy. And Timothy writes, knowing that Josh had a fairly big black canyon phase of his life, why did he choose to climb there so much? Was it because of his love for adventure and the beauty of the black, training his mental game, etc.? I would love to hear about significant experiences in the black that had an impact on him and some of his favorite routes and his FA of the black sheep, one of the hardest routes in the canyon. Uh, so I, after college and after my wife finished grad school, we moved out to the West Slip to Glenwood Springs. Um, my wife was managing an art center there and then eventually went on to become an elementary school teacher and substitute. Um, well, started substituting and then found out she liked doing that. And so she got um, teaching license. At the, at the time, it was like hard for them to attract teachers on the Western Slope. And so she was able to get a job out there, even though she didn't have a teaching license. And anyway, we wound up living in the town of Rifle for five years. We bought a little house there. Um, and so it's pretty, the black was kind of the close by adventure climbing area. And at the time, time a good friend of mine, Mike Pennings was living in Ridgeway. And so it was just sort of the logical place to go climb a lot. I could go do a, a quick two day trip there. And, and the black has a lot of elements to it that make it a good training ground for alpine rock climbing. Like it's, it's often really hot or really cold so it's okay. sort of uncomfortable. Like you're often really cold going down the gully in the morning, but then the walls heat up really well. So mm. you kind of have some like things to deal with logistically and just getting used to being uncomfortable. And the roots don't have like fixed two bolt anchors like Yosemite, you know, does. The root findings more of a thing. So it really is like sort of like this small alpine climbing area, even though it's you know, you're often climbing in light pants and a windbreaker or whatever. Um, so it was a perfect place to train for things I was doing, like going to Patagonia at the time and going to Pakistan and the Trango Valley. Um, and a lot of the people who I looked up to as mentors had spent a lot of time climbing there. So I was okay. learning from them, guys like Mike Pennings, Johnny Kopp, Jeff Hollenbaugh. So yeah, that's kind of how it was sort of like an organic thing. And then I just got obsessed with wanting to do all the roots in the black, basically. <laughs> <laughs> what are, I, I want to tackle like both sides of, of this coin. Um, what are some underappreciated routes that you think are gems in the black? That depends what your point of view is. <laughs> uh, I mean, I often tell my friends who I know to be good rock climbers who have, you know, well-traveled and stuff. There's like probably six routes that they should go do in the Black Canyon. Okay. Okay. But there's probably another 15 that are pretty cool and are good adventures. And then after that, you know, after that first 20, there's not that many. <laughs> do, you know, do you know how many routes you've done in the Black? I think I'm somewhere in a 
like just around a hundred. So out of a hundred routes that you've done, six of them are thumbs up. Like six of them are like really good. Okay. Like romantic warrior good or something like that. Like okay. you should go climb them as a rock climber. Okay. Like 20 of them are like pretty good. <laughs> the other 80, no. <laughs> Unless you enjoy pricker bushes and a little dirt in your eye, not worth it. Okay. I mean, one of the interesting things about the black is it gets this reputation as being sort of like chossy and bad. And that is kind of true with the easier grades because like sort of the bigger features and the cracks collect more dirt and more choss and like mm. sort of the easier routes other than the really well-traveled ones tend to not be that good. But the harder climbing takes place out on faces and stuff. Mm. And actually it's quite good. Like the good gray in the Black Canyon is 512. Mm. So it's kind of, it kind of gets this weird rep because you go there and you do like the two, you know, scenic crews and, and um, lightning bolt cracks or whatever. And you're like, oh, those are good. And then you try some other 510 or 511 and you're like, oh, that one's pretty bad. And then you try another one, that one's pretty bad. But if you're climbing at a little higher level and willing to take like a little more adventure, then some of the routes are amazing. And that's getting sort of more well-known, like routes like Take Your Time or become kind of popular. That's super high quality. I and mean, that's a route I would put in my top 10 long 512s in the country, mm. you know? So, and then any just horror shows like have you have you blacked those ones out from your yeah I tried to black those out for sure <laughs> definitely some horror shows I'm trying to think of what I mean there's a route that Mike put up called Shattered Glass oh yikes that is literally like shattered glass pegmatite just horrendous I mean I've had some um. Yeah. And as I say, I used to be like psyched to go do those sorts of things just because I thought they were really good growth learning experiences. And that, I mean, that kind of climbing is relevant when you go to big mountains, but um, those are not things I seek out anymore. Really, <laughs> <laughs> If I'm going to go climb Choss, I would rather do it with crampons and ice tools than <laughs> my hands and feet. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever finish late talk? No, I went there, I mean, I went there four times, Yeah, honestly. Uh, and- You never really got a shot at it, right? Yeah, well, end. it's kind of funny because like the last trip there was actually like one of the worst climbing trips of my life. Um, and it, the first three trips, we never really had any good weather. And then the last trip there, I was there with a friend, Nate from- Montana, uh, this guy, Nate Opp, uh, really nice guy, really good climber. But it was his first trip to the Karakoram. And we were originally going to be a team of three and um, with Mike Pennings. And Mike Pennings had to bail at the last minute for some other reasons. And then we got there and Nate kind of like looked at the mountain and was like, oh, I don't think I want to climb this. And at the time I was, uh, you know, maybe somewhat fairly, maybe somewhat unfairly, like, fourth trip here. I want to climb late talk. You know, I put so much time and effort into this thing. So I was like bummed. I was like pissed. So I was like, okay, I'm going to stay. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to go home. And so then I wound up hooking up with Hayden Kennedy and Kyle Dempster and finally had some like amazing weather windows, but those guys were more psyched on climbing the ogre than they were climbing late talk. So wound up climbing the ogre. I got horrible altitude sickness mm. really um like 
puking blood at Bibby at like 6,900 meters and Ooh. heinous, crazy experience. Um, waited it out and those guys went to the summit and then we all wrapped and it worked out, got back safe and sound. Um, but it was like, yeah, I was staring over at Lay Talk in this perfect weather window going, <laughs> oh, this like finally got the chance where it would have been a bit didn't have a partner that was excited for it. Um, and also spent like a ton of money to make that trip happen and stuff because, you know, sharing the cost had gone away because Nate had mm. gone home and stuff. And so I sort of limped back from that trip, like, mm, don't know if I'm going to go to the Karakoram again anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Would you be, will I was curious about that. You talked about this with Kalus and I, I've heard this story, but um, that's something I've never really thought much about is the cost. Yeah. You know, like we're all dirtbag climbers just trying to climb as much as we can. How much does a trip like that cost to just maybe those, any one of those first three trips to just get over there, give yourself a chunk of time and a shot at it, you know, and you're risking weather and whatever else, but. Yeah. Um, so of the places in the Himalaya to go climbing, Pakistan is actually relatively cheap, like okay. as compared to India and Nepal in terms of permits and how much things cost when you're there kind of depends where you're going. Like a big cost of the trip is actually porters. Mm. Um, because obviously, you know, if you're going into a base camp, that's a few days hike from the nearest village for two months, you need a lot of stuff. Mm. You need a lot of food. And so all those trips don't happen without the locals who work as porters. And rightly so, they charge more and more to carry all your stuff all the time. Um, so that can be a big cost. And so it kind of depends what you're doing. I mean, a trip like Lay Talk, I would say, you know, I don't know now, but I think it was, you know, probably like five grand per person. Okay. Um, back when I was going somewhere in that range, maybe a little less if you really wanted to dirt bag it and a little more if you wanted plush service. Um, when is this? Like 2010? Around? I went... Uh, 2007 to 2012. Okay. So with some skipped some seasons, obviously. So yeah, Trango Valley, you know, and I don't know if that's still true. It may have changed a little bit, but I mean, Trango Valley trips, maybe like three to five grand per person, maybe four grand. So it is expensive for sure. Um, that includes like airfare and everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of, I was always doing these things on like sort of the low end of the budget. I would <laughs> always like try to not stay at the nice hotels on my way up there and mm. travel by bus to get up, you know, so you can do it cheaply. Um, and, you know, they're like the Alpine Club luckily has a lot of cool climbing grants for Alpine climbing. So I would often apply for those and was lucky enough to get some back day and that helped offset the costs. Um, couple of trips was lucky enough to have sponsors kick in and pay some of the costs. And so like I always managed to like piece it together, mm. but as always, definitely when I was alpine climbing a lot, I was always operating very close or in the red, you know, <laughs> way more often than I am now because uh -huh. it is an expensive thing. And unless you sort of like go all in, in terms of, how you relate to media and how you're going to do all of that stuff, you know, like, and get big time sponsors and turn it into a production. 
then you're going to always be towing that line of paying for trips yourself versus mm. trying to get a little help here or there, you know, whatever it is. So, And what did those first three trips look like? You get there and do you just spend two months sitting in a tent <laughs> in the rain? Like what? Hopefully not. Um, normally you like when you show up, you try to do some acclimatization. So you climb some easier things, you know, sometimes that's just like hiking or skiing up to high coal and spending some days there. Um, really on all my trips, I did manage to climb some things that were cool and interesting, but, you know, expectations often define an experience. Mm. And if your expectation is you're going to try to climb Latok and you wind up, I mean, I did like the last trip I was describing, telling you how I had a bad trip. Well, in the interim between when Nate was gone and Kyle and Hayden showed up at base camp, I soloed a, a new technical route on like a 6,000 meter rock spire that wow. was super cool, you know? But since it wasn't lay talk, <laughs> it didn't right. feel like, it didn't feel like a good, a big accomplish to me at the time, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, was super cool. So every trip I went on did new routes just on smaller things, you know, preparations, acclimatizing, that would be, if that had been your goal, you'd be like, oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are things that are like the size of stuff in Patagonia, but compared to Latok, much smaller, mm. so. How do you think about Latok now? Well, it's, yeah, someone just asked me that the other day. And um, I actually kind of, I was talking to my friend, Whit Magra, who is actually one of the guys I went on one of the trips with and we were saying, oh yeah, maybe we'll go back to Latok in our fifties, try again. <laughs> like, okay. you know, once the kids are off at college, mm. we'll go back. Cause I still would like to climb it. Like some guys actually, like each trip I learned more and more about the mountain and about what I, like I thought the best, most, you know, clear way to get to the top from the North was and conditions and all that stuff. And some Slovenian guys, actually climbed the route that I had wanted to do like a few years ago. Okay. And um, so it- First descent? Yeah, first descent. So sort of like a combination of the North Ridge and like swinging around and like cresting around the mountain onto the South face for the last bit to the top. And uh, that was sort of like, um, sort of oddly rewarding at the time. Cause I was like, oh yeah, my vision for where the route goes like worked. Mm. Um, That's cool. So that was kind of cool. And I knew the guys a little bit and I liked them. Like they're really <laughs> nice, talented climbers who are sort of soft-spoken and under the radar. So that was cool. It's the kind of thing that didn't get all that much press because, because Latok has such a big place in American alpinism history because of that attempt in 79. Like if Americans had climbed it, it would have been a big deal, I think. But since some Slovenian guys did it, it was sort of like off the radar. Like nobody in Slovenia would have a relation to Latok. Mm. Um, in the same way, like in the States climbing necessary evil might be a big deal, but mm. in Europe, like if you said necessary evil to someone, they'd be like, well, what, what Craig? Yeah. Yeah. C can you fill in a little bit more of that story for people? Um, so and for me, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. In 79, I think it was 78 or 79, George Lowe, Jeff Lowe, um, Jim Danini and Michael Kennedy went onto the Northridge of Latok and spent like 28 days making their way up at capsule style and got very close to the top. But um, Jeff Lowe got very sick towards the top. So they decided to bail. Mm. And 
that sort of became like a legendary, they were the best alpine climbers of the time. And that became sort of like a legendary story in American alpinism. And Jim Denise, a very good storyteller. And he would, that was like his go-to slideshow. Mm. So you would always see, you know, at Ice Fest and stuff, there would always be the the Jim Denise lay talk slideshow. Got it, <laughs> got it. Um, and that's kind of how it came onto my radar as a really young climber. Like I saw one of his slideshows when I was a freshman in college. I was like, wow, 28 days, you know, it's like crazy adventure. And Can you describe capsule style? So capsule style, they had, um, I think five ropes and they would essentially like fix their ropes up the ridge from a camp, wrap back down, move camp, mm. fix another five ropes. So sort of like moving up the mountain progressive style versus like Got continuously it. or versus expedition style, which have been just taking enough rope to fix the entire thing mm. and go back and forth from the bottom to the top. Okay. Yeah. And what were you trying to do? Alpine style, which is just, you know, climb with two it. ropes and go up it, bivvying along the way as needed. Yeah. I was curious. So with your earlier attempts, you it sounds like that was coinciding with all this time in the black and you were kind of getting this relevant training doing that. How would you prepare for it in your 50s if you were going to go back? What would you do to prepare for late talk? Um, I'd probably spend a lot more time doing like aerobic exercise than I do right okay. now. So just moving a lot you know, riding my bike and hiking and doing longer days. I don't think your training needs to be super specific in the way that it does for, uh, you know, like high-end rock climbing. Mm. It's not the same kind of thing. Like there are just so many more factors at play, you know, in terms of conditions and weather. And it's not the kind of thing where you're going to go to lay talk and be like, okay, I'm in the best aerobic fitness of my life. So I'm just going to outrace the weather and just use this narrow window. So I would just move more and like focus, focus less on high end difficulty and more on mileage and lots of hiking and lots of biking. And I mean, maybe in my fifties, I would have to have that be, look like some sort of aerobic training plan. Mm. I don't know, but previous to that, that's not what I would do. I would just take a more sort of organic approach. Okay. And, and I never felt like fitness was the limiting factor. Mm. You know, sure in certain moments, fitness helps more or less, but that's generally not the reason you fail when you go alpine climbing. And for me, in my experience, might be different if I had a desk job and, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about to be current in that like alpine mindset, terrain, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, you... I mean, spending more time doing that sort of thing. So a lot of those days- Around here? Yeah, around here. And I, actually it's, it's kind of funny because at the time, so I guess we lived in Rifle 2005 to 2010, and I didn't have access to a lot of like winter climbing out the back door. I mean, there's ice climbing at Vail and ice climbing in Rifle and dry tooling, but that's very different than snow covered rock mm. climbing. That's you know, a very different experience to go dry tooling at Vail on bolts is as different from climbing at Rifle versus climbing slab roots in Yosemite. Hmm very different experience. And actually that's sort of a, a pretty good analogy because like, you know, the slab roots in it, Yosemite have like a really high technical aspect to them. It can be scary. Conditions matter a lot, whether it's hot or sun. Rifle has its own technical aspect, but it's like a way different thing. It's like, do you know the knee bar and, right. you know, your biceps strong, all those <laughs> kinds of things. Like, right. So it's totally different. Um, 
So when I moved here into Estes Park in 2010, and I started climbing in the park a lot in the winter, I actually got way, way better at that kind of climbing. Improved hmm. a lot. Um, and that was cool. That was something like I hadn't really expected, but it was really, really useful. You got better at like the- Like climbing snow-covered rock, like, which is often the crux when you're on a big alpine face. From doing the dry tooling in the park? Yeah, like you go climb something like, um, you know, one of the five eights or five nines on Hallett's okay. in February. Mm. It's like a pretty awesome adventure there. <laughs> the part, the weather in the park is really nasty in the winter. It's super, super windy, mm. really cold. And then as it warms up a little bit in the spring, when it storms, the snow tends to stick to the rock versus blow off. And that makes like cool Scottish type conditions, which has a real like sort of, you know, like you don't see the holds as well. So you have to learn to sort of like how to judge whether a hold is good or bad with your ice tool, hmm. how to root out gear when the when the cracks filled with ice or snow, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So I actually improved a ton climbing in the park probably and did a lot of that type of climbing from like 2010 to 2015, you know. I'm really, I'm curious about the mixed style i've never really i've never tried it i've never really been that exposed to it and another one of the videos that i watched was you winning the ura ice fest mm -hmm. the third year in a row that you won that um and it just struck me watching you basically it's just like a four or five minute clip talking you know an interview with you about the event um about your your broken back and recovering from that and mm -hmm. then just you know running footage of you doing the climb <laughs> painters after us chased by the painter <laughs> and it just it struck me watching that that like wow this is so weird it's like very highly technical in the sense that where you're putting your tools is so specific and i could tell you're like kind of feeling around with your tools for things and then it's also just like as soon as you find the placement you're holding on to jugs yeah. for everything and you're like mm -hmm. you know just using your heels with both feet mm -hmm. because you have these weird boots with spikes yeah. coming out of them, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's, what a strange combination to be so technical and yet just kind of straightforward, like thuggy hanging on jugs. Yeah, sport dry tooling is a really weird aspect of climbing, sort of like off width climbing. Like if someone's really into sport dry tooling, red flag, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like that is, that forward climbing is bizarre because you're exactly right. Like you have the same hold in your hand all the time, right? So I always thought it was weird that people wanted to like fly across the world to go to some dry tooling crag because the hold's exactly the same. <laughs> like, the experience is not that different, right? Yeah. Um, so I never really loved that kind of climbing actually. And I really, I actually signed up for the comp initially because I wanted to improve at mixed climbing and like force myself to do it for Latok. Okay. That honestly is like why, why I started doing that kind of climbing. And it wasn't a kind of climbing like I did regularly. I would just kind of do it in December, January. It's kind of a bad time weather-wise on the Western Slope. And I would do it, you know, then you could go down to Uray or to Rifle or to Vale. And I learned a lot doing it, but it was never like, ooh, this is amazing. Like I, I want to, you know, I want to go try the hardest mixed route in the world or I'm going to go on the World Cup. It was always like... 
it always felt a little bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's an odd combination of like, it's sort of like physical aid climbing. Yeah. Because you learned how to judge hook placements, the integrity of hook placements, but you have to be fit enough to hang on for a long time. Uh-huh. And it's way less varied than rock climbing. Like it's really about core strength and lock-off strength. Mm. Right? So it's like, you know, you get a good, whether the hold's small enough, it's like whether you can hold the tool steady on the hold. Okay. You know? It's like, so you start to get pumped, you get a little shakier and then your tool oh, okay. skates more often and things like that. And that kind of climbing actually, although it does help you get better for alpinism and the snow covered rock climbing that tight, it's not really in the same way, like climbing and rifle all the time wouldn't help you get better at Yosemite slab climbing. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. And a lot of those people who are extremely good at that kind of stuff would be terrified climbing in Scotland or in Hallett's in the winter where the rock's all covered with snow and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a few people who do both of it well, but there's not, it's not that common, so. Okay. Yeah. So it did, it kind of served you, but it sounds like it was more of the like five eights on Hallett's that really. For like getting good alpinism, that's where I learned more. I mean, I, I, I did learn quite a lot from doing those from like doing the array comp and forcing myself to go there. I actually, what I learned- That's <laughs> so funny because you won three years. <laughs> but I mean, it was, you know what I learned more than anything out of doing that was about training. Okay. Because doing the comp and like fear of embarrassment basically <laughs> was the first time in my life, you know, from when I started climbing until let's say like 2010, training was not hip. Like mm. people did not train. Like in the climbing world, it was sort of like, oh, you're training? You know, mm -hmm. they sort of look at you sideways. Like, oh, that's kind of lame. You should probably just go climbing. And that came a lot out of, there were so many kids like crushing at the time. Like the gym scene was just starting. And so people, there were all these people who took rock climbing so seriously in the nineties and then started getting schooled by guys like Tarami and Chris Sharma and stuff who weren't taking it or didn't appear to be because they were 12, Right. you know? And so that kind of changed the psychology of the thing. And so I never really trained. I mean, my training looked like, oh, the weather's bad. Let's go do laps on 12 A's at Boulder Rock Club, mm. you know? And when I signed up for the area ice fest, I was like, okay, for the next six weeks, I'm gonna like dedicate to trying to get fit to do well in this comp. And it was a realization. I remember after I did the first one, I went with Dave Pegg to the cathedral and okay. Like the next week, and I onsite at a five thirteen, and that was the first time I'd ever. I mean, this was like two thousand seven or eight or something. First time I'd ever onsite five thirteen. I was like, "Whoa, huh? How did that happen?" Yeah. And it was obviously just because I was much fitter than I'd ever been, you know, in a like dedicated way, not just on an off random day kind of thing. What were you doing? It just I mean, I did and, lots, yeah, lock lots core lockoffs and so big muscle <clears throat> stuff. And um, were you just just like taking stuff on your own? Just yeah, more or less. Okay. Like I do lots of things, like go out and climb routes without match. Like you, you have this double-handed pommel on an ice tool where you can match. Okay. So as a result, you can kind of shake anywhere on a route. Okay. So I would force myself to climb the route with no matching allowed. Got and it. And you get way more pumped that way and you have to reach through all the time. 
And that was a good little hack of how to train for those comps. Got it. Yeah. So for people listening that haven't seen this, and this was new to me watching your your video, and I'll share the video for people that want to watch it, but you're you're very often like kind of bumping your way up the ice tools. Like you find a good placement, you match on it, you clip, you like hang the other ice tool around your neck or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you clip and bite then, it in your teeth sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then you match hands you know, find the next placement, match that one, et cetera, and just kind of carry on. So you, you have, that makes sense. So if you're not matching, you have to do these big like reach throughs. Yeah, gotcha. yeah exactly. Same thing's true in rock climbing. Like if you go to a rock climbing area where you can't match, it's obviously way pumpier mm. than a rock climbing area where you can match. Um, yeah, no, no jug shakes. Yeah, Man. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like Smith Rock's a good classic example of that where you have to like lock off to the next hold and you don't necessarily get a hold the same level to shake on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about some of your other training because I actually had, um, like I've learned more about your history since um, in, in preparing for this conversation. So I know that you had this history of just spending a lot of time rock climbing. But before that, I'd heard your name and I think I'd heard it, you know, just, I, I just knew that you were like this myth- mythical character <laughs> that had done all these different things and was somehow really good at everything. But I think I'd heard some stories from Mikey and SJ mm-hmm. and I talked to SJ and I remember her saying that she went to you for a training plan because you were so knowledgeable with the training and mm-hmm. she was trying to climb, I think city park at the time, like this 13 plus at index. And so I kind of had just associated you as someone who had, who'd spent a lot of time training, had a lot of knowledge about it. And then also talking to Jonah, you know, I think something that he said multiple times was that he just doesn't know if he's met anyone who's more thoughtful, more analytical, and brings more attention to every aspect of your approach. So I'm I'm curious, because earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the bouldering and the sport climbing really taught you a lot about training. Mm-hmm. What did that evolution look like? Were you just reinventing the wheel and just coming up with stuff? Or were you trying different programs and reading books? How did you first bring training into your climbing? Um, I guess prior to doing Uray and, and like sort of preparing for that comp and seeing, so like preparing over a longer period of time and seeing it have results, uh, I had a roommate, a guy I still climb with all the time, a good friend, Jed Wareham Morris, um, that lived with us, rented a room from us in rifle and was a dedicated rifle climber in that period. And we had a little shed in the back, you know, with a little woody on it and fingerboards. And I saw him, he was kind of a weekend warrior. He like was a bank teller at the bank and would go climb on the weekends. And I saw him training and being out there fingerboarding. So I started to learn some things from him and do some of that, but not really in like a super thoughtful, progressive way. Just, you want to move again? I think, no, yeah. it's okay. okay. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> will it? Funny <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and then, yeah, I think it's just reading through things through the years and then sort of like trial and error. Um, and also sort of, like feeling, I think you and I were talking about this earlier, not as we were recording, but just feeling like some of it, it's all too complicated when it can be a lot simpler. Like I don't, like for so many people, it's just about 
like learning the basics of what training is, like learning that it's not exercising, learning that training mm. is not just like showing up at the gym a little more often and that constitutes training. Mm. You know, if you show up at the gym and you bench press a hundred pounds, 15 times, just without any thought, you know, like, yeah, it'll be a little, if you've never gone and bench press, like you'll have some progression at first, then you plateau very quickly. And like a lot of people just don't get that basic concept. They just think that it's like, yeah, I've been training a lot. And what they mean is they've been going to the gym more often and staying a little longer. Mm. Like for most people, I think for a lot of people, it's just about adding something systematic and maybe about adding something that's like specific to whatever they're going at, you know? And so for somebody like SJ, she just wasn't, I think she wanted, she wanted to do Mr. Yuck at Smith. Yeah. And she was falling off at the top repeatedly, like she could do the moves. So it was just like a power endurance issue for her. So it was just about like, and of course too, she was like, yeah, I wanna, I have like four more weeks until I'm leaving, right? You know, so I have three weeks to train. What do I do? <laughs> you're like, well, <laughs> you know, and this climbers, it's just a funny sport, right? Because we just want our best every time we're at the crag. Like, totally. You know, like. That is a unique thing and challenge about Yeah, about it's like that balance of ego. Like no, everybody's just annoyed unless they feel awesome every time and send their <laughs> hardest red point. Uh -huh. Like Michael Phelps never goes to the pool and is like, you know, like, oh, I didn't swim the world record today. I suck. Totally. You know, God, like I didn't get is... my PR. We do do that. Yeah. And that's such a thing in climbing. And so for somebody like SJ, it was just like, okay, it's a power endurance issue. So what you need to do is some four by fours or some like back to backs in the gym on routes or problems with similar style holds you know, and build some quick, because you can see results from that kind of thing pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And she could do it. You know, it was, it's not like needed, she needed to get 20% better. She needed to get like half a percent better mm -hmm. and just be a little more thoughtful about how I approach it. It wasn't rocket science, you know, and it was doable. And so I think like for a lot of people, that's what it is. And that's why, that's why I was talking to you earlier about how it feels like it's gotten so complicated and you mm -hmm. just hope that there's secret sauce out there, but really it's just sort of like thoughtful effort and consistency and like building good habits over time. Yeah, we were relocating because of the painter and you asked me if I ever just got overwhelmed. I th you said something, I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but you said something along those lines of like, do you ever just get overwhelmed with all this information doing all these interviews? And um, one of the biggest takeaways for me has been like, wow, how you do things really does seem to matter so much more than the what, because a lot of people are doing a lot of different things, but the people that are getting really, really strong spend a lot of time doing really high quality, high intensity work hmm. where they're not getting tired. You mm -hmm. know, like that's the common thing there. You can do that on a campus board, on a moon board, on a hangboard. Mm -hmm. on conventional gym boulders or outside, whatever. Mm -hmm. But but that is the thing that a lot of those guys and, and gals do that I missed for a long time because mm -hmm. I wanted to send, you know, I wanted to be ticking things mm -hmm. every time I went climbing. And it's about, and it, also those things like becoming habit mm. so that you're doing that over the course. Like I, I often tell people like training doesn't play out over days and weeks. It plays out over like months and years. Mm. So you like steady progression. I think it's really useful to look at the people 
who aren't necessarily the like the best strongest climbers but the people who have seen the biggest steady progression of their climbing totally over time and that's like who you can learn a lot from because we often look to people who are super ta naturally talented and are like you know how do you climb 515 you're sort of like well i don't know i just did it <laughs> i went to the gym a lot when i was 10 to 16 and I was now I'm really, really good. And I don't know, it's nothing really that all that different. But it's like the people who maybe started out as 512 climbers and have climbed 9A, mm -hmm. like that's a big, that's a much different person. Yeah. And right? that journey that's, took 25 years. Yeah. And I think there's years. a lot more to learn from that mm. than there is from some other folks. Like, I, for instance, like personally inspiring, I find Jonathan Seagrass climbing to be really inspiring because he is someone who, when I met him was sort of like running laps on the 13 A's at Boulder Rock Club, but has since really stepped back, even though he was a, a very good climber, stepped back and taken an objective look at his climbing and where, where his like holes were and where his blind spots were to improve and like changed his approach and has since become really, really good. Yeah. And that's super cool. That's super inspiring to me. Mm. And you don't really see that a lot amongst the really talented people mm -hmm. because it's just easier and more fun to just go climbing and sort of stay at whatever your level is, you know, mm -hmm. maybe be a little better or a little worse. What are some of the staples for you? Um, fingerboarding was a huge one for a long time. Um, just because I think it's like simple and quantifiable and easy to progress. So you can come back to it you know, and have an idea of where you were and where it might take to get back to where you were to progress past that PR. And then I think also a lot of front range climbing and a lot of like technical trad climbing that I enjoy tends to be very fingery. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the projects. So fingerboarding was a big staple. And then, you know, basic like board sessions have become more of a staple since I've had a moon board and now a tension board too. Yeah. High quality limit bouldering basically. Mm. Yeah. But I have to say, um, like recent in the last couple of years, I've been dealing with a lot of injuries like as I've gotten older and maybe not, you know, like my approach of just like going really hard and always doing these sort of like, okay, I'm going to do a hard three week block and then go after a project. And then if I don't do it, go back to a hard three week block and go mm. after a project. Like, and I just was find, finding myself in like worked and tweaked all the time. And so this year I actually reached out to Lattice and I've been doing a training program with a coach from Lattice. Really? Yep. Okay. And I totally have a t total love-hate relationship with it right now. <laughs> 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 what do you love and what do you hate? Um, I love the accountability part of it. I love, and I love having someone else think about how to organize the training and make it. Um, I hate that it's more like periodized and you get less like sort of organic going out climbing days. Mm. Um, you know, like when you have the ability to climb full time or live in your van and climb full time, there's a real like sort of like chasing the waves element cl to climbing with conditions and things. Yeah. And it's sort of like, well, today was supposed to be a training day, but it's really nice weather. I'm going to go try the project or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my buddies in town, I'm going to go climbing. And this summer I've totally like stepped back from that and just been like, nope, I'm doing the training plan. I'm going outside one day a week. 
that we that day is sort of prescribed by whatever what coach, the weather's doing. What coach, yeah, I just go, you know, like, and these are the the routes I'm gonna go after. It's made me realize how spoiled I am as a climber, like, mm. and how much I'm used to like producing and sending routes. You know, this year I've done way fewer routes mm. than I normally do. Producing just in the sense of tech, uh, just like getting shit boxes. done. Yeah, like getting shit done, like climbing yeah. a bunch of five thirteens every year. You know, I have a yeah. I I'm like you in that sense. I think I have a hard time anytime I'm letting that mm -hmm. go by the wayside. Like I yeah, because it's just fun. It's fun and it's gratifying and it's yeah. like fun to go out and put in effort. Um, and the training can be too, but some of it's more of a grind also, mm. you know? They're really, I mean, the good things about it, there's been like way more conditioning and mobility stuff, um, which has been good for making me feel healthier. I was gonna ask, what are some of the things that you're, that they're having you do that you wouldn't have done? Yeah, like I would say it's not so much that I didn't do conditioning, mobility and conditioning and mobility stuff beforehand. It's more that I didn't have like accountability and adherence to it. Mm. So it's more like, you know, you get a sore shoulder, you work on it for a week or two, and then you sort of drop it. Yeah. Whereas doing the training plan for the last few months, it's just like, oh yeah, this is part of the week. Like I got to do this workout, mm. you know? So that level of accountability over a longer frame of time, I think has helped me feel healthier. Um, I'm still kind of like on the fence of whether I think that it's something I'll do long-term or whether I think it's sustainable. I think that if I was a, you know, a person who had a, a nine to five professional career and really interested in sending one particular route or bumping up my level, it would make like a ton of sense. But as someone who has the ability to go climbing outside all the time and do things and really enjoys that, I'm not sure that, that this approach is like sustainable long-term. Mm. So that's something I've actually been talking with the coach about is some like way to find a happy middle ground. Mm there for me personally but i think everybody's kind of different in that regard you know like i'm sure you can relate living in, in your van being able yeah. to travel and climb around you're like well it's kind of better just to climb all the time but if i actually want to get better i've got to like lock in spend some time in a place do some sort of actual training you know not the odd workout here or there yeah that's something that's been really interesting for me is is that I've really lived both of those lives now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm living the second one, but, and, and actually I was kind of more this way in college too. So in, in a way I've come back, which is interesting, but I had like five years at Smith and I've talked about this a lot on the show, but I was just locked into the grind mm -hmm. and um, really sacrificing a lot of outdoor climbing and a lot of those experiences mm -hmm. for like following the plan. And they, they kind of do both work, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, definitely was the best option for me given my circumstances mm -hmm. but i'm much happier now that i've changed my circumstances yeah, yeah, yeah. you know but uh -huh. um one thing that popped into my head that i'm working on now uh, this goes back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago is that like now that i do have more freedom and i get to climb a lot i think one of my biggest challenges is is what you said like i do not need I, I, it would be best for me as far as my long-term progress to get away from the feeling that I have to perform well every time I go climbing. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Tyler Nelson has really helped, helped me think about is, dude, just do a handful of really hard hangs at the end of every climbing day in the mm -hmm. evening, like wait a few hours or do it the next morning if you climb at night, but do like something really simple that 
you know, if you zoom out, it's really easy to see like, wow, if I do two or three short high intensity hangboard workouts a week for three years, that's going to add up mm-hmm. to a lot, you know, and, and my climbing might be like 80, 90, 95% um, because I'm a little tired from those yeah. day in, day out. But yeah, that's something I still struggle with all the time because mm-hmm. I want to send, I want to send mm-hmm. the project, yeah. you know, but yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I think it's actually, it's funny because, you know, people who work full-time jobs are often like, oh man, you get to climb all the time. You must do all this stuff. But I, I think it's actually for personal progression, as long as you're a dedicated type A trainer, it's actually probably better to have a full-time job, climb on the weekends yeah. and train a couple of days a week than it is to just be living on the road full-time climbing, you know, in terms yeah. of like physical <laughs> progression. Totally. I think it's, but think that's it's not, true. but certainly not in terms of like numbers of routes you're going to do and the right. experiences you're going to have. And I, so like when people ask me about like basic training ideas, like one thing I tell them that I did in the past, although I'm changing that now doing this lattice thing is, is like, I prioritize what's coming up. And so am I prioritizing the climbing or am I prioritizing the training? And so for me, the last handful of years, what's that's looked like is if I'm prioritizing the training, train day one, climb day two, and be okay with reduced performance at the crag. And if I'm prioritizing the climbing, climb day one, squeeze some training in there, mm. you know, afterwards or once a week or whatever. And yeah. that sort of plays out, I think, through the years with some gradual progression. I like that. Yeah. But you never fully let go of the training. Yeah, never yeah. fully let go of the training, never fully let go of the climbing outside. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And that way, you you know, you get a happy medium of both all the time in your hands, so. Mm-hmm. I had another thought and it escaped me. Wow, this is the steepest campus board I've ever seen. It folds out from the roof. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, I could definitely not campus this with that. 60 degree campus board. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Oh, what was I going to ask you? Damn. It escaped me. Oh, with the lattice thing, how's it going? How are you feeling? Is it um, helping? Yeah, I'm feeling healthier okay. than I have. That's big. Yeah, which is big because I was having a lot of shoulder issues. Um, so we're feeling healthier. Hips and knees are feeling good. Like I've had, a, I had three knee surgeries in the last five years. Oh, wow. So, um, so the body's feeling good, but again, it's one of those love hate things. Like, I'm not sure is the body feeling good because I'm climbing less <laughs> and doing less or because of the plan. Uh-huh. Right. So that's always Just like, rested. that's sort of a question in my mind. Um, I'm definitely feeling fitter in terms of like sport climbing fitness, like ability to hang on and do relatively difficult moves for a while. Um, power is sort of like okay. Okay. Not great, but okay. And I think I had a pretty heavy the last, I don't know, definitely five years, six years, like probably, probably like definitely a pretty heavy strength and power emphasis in my training and stepped away more from the endurance, power endurance side of training. And that's sort of played out in my climbing as well in terms of like the kinds of routes that go quickly and don't go mm. quickly for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I kind of took that approach because I don't know, you know, endurance comes and goes and strength and power is kind of forever. And mm. I think that that's kind of a, yeah. that's a good general rule of thumb. 
Um, and also tens that a lot of front range sport climbing is sort of like bouldering on a rope. Yeah. So, um, and then I feel I, like most of the sport climbing in the States is like that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like the vast, I mean, it's, there's like the Red River Gorge. Yeah. The Red or Rifle. Yeah. But other than that, it's like, can you do the moves? Right. And then at some point, to, you know, whether that's a, a two day effort or a 20 day effort, the endurance comes and you pull it off. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's kind of the approach I've taken. And also, like a lot of things I've wanted to do are long multi pitch routes, like track climbs, which again is sort of like bouldering on a rope with easy climbing in between, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, so that's kind of the approach I've taken. I've had pretty decent success with that. Now, granted, I haven't climbed like 514s in rifle, um, but I haven't wanted to, and those haven't been projects. So, but I think that that was like a pretty, when I did the lattice assessment and in the training I've been doing, that was like a pretty obvious weakness. And the person, Maddie Cope is the woman I'm working with. And she was like pretty quick to point out that, yeah, this is where you have room for a lot of growth. What is in that? In this like endurance and power endurance aspect. Oh, okay versus your strength and your finger strength. Like my oh. scores were like kind of what I would expect, which was like really good finger strength relative to my red point level. Okay. And not so good and the endurance and power endurance. So, From all the hangboarding and, and board yeah, sessions yeah, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, I just need to flip places with you because that's, <laughs> that's still a weakness yeah. of mine. We always want what we don't have, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's exactly what it is. Uh -huh. Did you have a project or a goal going into this? Because I, I imagine I, I would have to for me, like to yeah. follow a regimented program yeah. like this. I always have like, I'm pretty goal oriented and I always yeah. write down goals at the beginning of each year and stuff. Kind of the biggie for this year, which is something I've been wanting to do for a handful of years, but it just hasn't lined up with the weather or something happened, like an injury or something is try to flash free rider. Mm. So that was kind of the goal of the, the training cycle. So I can go try that in November, assuming healthy and good weather and stuff. Okay. So, and then a, a bunch of like intermediate goals in between that sort of are related to free rider, like multi-pitch routes. Um, and, but it's kind of been kind of funny just because I'm like, okay, so I've got the next three weeks to train and then I'm going to go on a trip for 10 days and try to do, you know, whatever route. And then I'll be back for three weeks. And coach Maddie is like, oh, it's not very much time to train. I'm seeing like, you know, how normal training cycles work. Like it's usually a much longer scale. Mm. But so she and I are in a little push and pull about, you know, like she lives in England where the weather's junk all the time. So, mm -hmm. you know, she's like, oh, it rains all the time. Like three months, no big deal. It's going to rain for the next three months. I'll just train. That's another one of those like hidden blessings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so as I say, from like a training point of view, it's like sort of a blessing and a curse. Like Colorado, you can climb year round. Exactly. There's stuff all the time. And so it's like, you can get out every week to somewhere with decent conditions. Mm -hmm. um, so it does feel like a sacrifice to say, oh, I'm just going to go in the, in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it was, a, um, and a part of the choice too, was about uh, wanting to try to like, level up a little bit while I'm younger and do some of the, like the stretch rock goals for me, while I still feel like maybe physically I'm capable of growing a little bit. And so, a lot of those, because I've climbed so much in Colorado are away from home. And so trying to integrate that with being a good dad, it's sort of like, yeah, I could go and spend 
two months in Yosemite. And that probably would be just as effective, if not more so than training in the garage and going to Yosemite for 10 days mm. in terms of like prepping to flash rewriter. But I don't really have the bandwidth to be a good dad and do that. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I'm like, okay, Aaron, I'm going to bail to Yosemite <laughs> for two months and just climb a ton of routes and yeah. go for it when the weather's perfect. And like, I just wouldn't feel like I was being a good dad. Yeah. Way. So that was kind of the thinking behind it. I don't know if I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that was kind of the thinking going in. I want to get into, I want to dig into some of your, um, preparation for this and you were showing me a a free rider boulder problem simulator that you built here right on the wall of your garage with the foot kick and everything across the door um i know you're incredibly analytical and really put a lot of thought into all of this stuff what are you doing to do your research are you watching videos are you like do you have like measurements for the boulder problem like how did you decide how to set the replica how are you thinking about all this stuff um yeah, you'll have to ask Mikey if it's okay if I he if you put this out there, but he sent me like 10 minutes of raw footage of Honald on the boulder problem. Oh, sick. When Honald's working on a Grigri. Okay. That he shot during free solo. Okay. So I have like 10 minutes of Honald <laughs> trying like various betas with like zoomed in at the footholds. Wow. Like a huge file that I can just like totally look exactly what the holds look like. I mean, there's like a shot where he's like <laughs> taking the grip and, you know. So like, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, I don't have a tape measurement because I don't know exactly how tall Honold is and stuff, but he's pretty much my size. Yeah. So I think it's pretty much to spec. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, dude. And then like watched a bunch of other videos of it, like saw other people's betas and like built sort of like other versions too. So there's multiple versions here. Mm. Because I feel like flashing the root probably comes down to flashing the boulder problem. Right. For me. So... I think it comes down to flashing the boulder problem and and arriving there relatively fresh, like doing the wide climbing without getting tired. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. yeah, how, okay, so in your garage here in Estes, how the hell do you prep for the monster and stuff uh, like that? I've been going out and doing mini track laps on Crack of Fear at Lumpy. Got it. Yeah, once a week. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Yep. <laughs> Oh, that sounds heinous. Yeah. Dude. And that was like, so this spring I prepped, I was like excited to go try free rider in spring and going to do it um, and trained quite hard and felt good, but I'd been having all these shoulder issues. So I ignored the off width climbing because chicken winging is like quite hard on top of your shoulders. Okay. And went out the week before I was headed to Yosemite to do like, okay, I'm going to go do a little off width tune up and my shoulders like totally hurt and mm. I felt wrecked after the day. And I was like, oh, yeah, I am not. I'm not ready. Hmm. And that was actually kind of why I initially thought of Lattice because Tom Randall obviously has a lot mm. of wide crack experience. Sure. And I was like, maybe he's got some good insight into how to improve at that while not sacrificing like what we normally think of as endurance and power and those other things. So, yeah. Yeah. And the answer was do laps on crack of fear once a week. No, Olympic. he didn't say, I mean, they have me doing some like conditioning exercises that are sort of shoulder off with like these supine rotations okay. on your back. They're sort of the same muscle group here as you do when you're chicken winging. With weight? Um, yeah. You're like on your back with a dumbbell. Okay. That good stuff. Um, yeah. And then I was sort of like talking with Maddie, just, 
I sort of suggested I add in one day of mini tracking on Crack of Fear and she thought that was a good idea. So it's a fun day. Like you come and do a bunch of like conditioning exercises and stuff in the morning and then the evening go out and do some off with laps on Crack of Fear. It's like, yes, yeah, sweet, psyched. <laughs> and that's what I've talked about with the love-hate thing. Like there's a difference between like, loving like being excited <laughs> about a project and being excited about the training for that project totally yeah yeah you're doing what you need to do yeah yeah, yeah. well that's cool man you're going in november i'm excited to uh to follow along see what happens yeah well, i'll let you know how it goes probably just i'll probably fall off on like the second pitch slip off this lab did you ever see that like uh that read that article a long time ago that Yuji Hirayama wrote for Alpinist. Where no. he, was, he, was, he was like trying to onsite El Cap at the time and he tried the South A and Fallen. And then he was trying El Nino and he's like talking you through the lead up process for a couple months. There's a Japanese TV crew. He's got like oh, a God. cook and like a massage therapist. Uh-huh. And then there's a pic, like a huge picture of him just like obviously screaming, you know, fuck. <laughs> whatever that is in Japanese on like pitch two of El Nino uh, <laughs> as he falls. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I don't go into it with like a, a, like, oh yes, if I do check all the boxes, it will definitely happen. Like flashing and onsetting. There's always, especially on any big route, there's just so many little variables or easy mm. place to make a mistake. And so, but it's just a cool challenge. Yeah. It's like a fun thing. Like, yeah, yeah why not? So. Cool. cool. Do you have enough time on your trip that if you don't flash it, you'll be able to give it a proper red point track? Yeah, for sure. Sweet. I'm going to go up there like wall style. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. So even if I just do it ground up, that'd be cool. Sick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I want to get to some more listener questions and three different people asked this one. It's it's a pretty obvious question and I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But yeah, Henry and Garrett and our friend SJ Basically, I'll ask the same question about risk now that you have mm-hmm. a daughter. And I'll read Henry's question because it was it was thorough and really good. As a parent, um, I'm, I think he means as a parent himself. As a parent, I'm curious to learn about Josh's attitude towards risk. Specifically, how much, if any, did parenthood reduce his tolerance for risk? I think about how much risk I'm willing to accept from climbing, specifically how much of a chance of dying and not being available as a parent. I've thought that I would be willing to accept a one in 1,000 chance. Does Josh have any thoughts on this, particularly since he has engaged in high-level alpine climbing? So I think that um, as a younger climber, I, you could definitely say that I was willing to take some big risks at time relatively, relative to my ability level. And I did that more frequently as I've gotten older, I think I've gotten a little more calculated in my risk-taking. And I think that just happens for anybody. You get like more sense of your own mortality, lose more friends and you mm-hmm. sort of like, so you your risk becomes about the things that are super valuable or important to you or like things you're willing to say, you're not taking risks all the time. I think it's like useful to think of risk almost sort of like a bank account and you know, you make a withdrawal when you take take risk and you only have so much time in there. So I think it's like a time play. And I think that's what happens to, and people have this vision that alpinism is like, just you're on death's door every minute you're out there. And that's not the case at all. 
it's way more analogous to something like um, highball bouldering, where mm. most of the time it's pretty safe and you're locked in. But there's a couple moments where if you fuck up, you're going to get real hurt or die. Mm. That's kind of what alpinism is like. There's like, most of the time it's relatively speaking chill. I'm not talking like going golfing chill, but <laughs> chill. Right. They're like, not like, you know, there's gear or, you know, there's no objective hazard, but then there are moments when it's serious and like, you don't want to mess up. And that how serious that is, is like also relative to your skill level too, just in the way that you could probably easily solo a 5.4, but you probably wouldn't do that so much if it was 5.11. Mm -hmm. So how much, I mean, it's not as risky for Honold to solo something really hard or harder than it would be for someone who's right near their limit. So yeah, I like, I like to think of risk as a bank account and I've start like as a parent, I make withdrawals from that bank account way less than I used to. Mm. And I do it more like infrequently and and do it only when it's something that I'm like, mm, this is a really cool route, a really good opportunity that would be it's inspiring to me and motivating to me. And I think it's okay. Like, I don't think you want to, I think it's important to take risks in life. Like I don't want my daughter to do the same. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want her to live some life in a bubble. Um, and uh, it's been really interesting during the pandemic to watch how terrible humans are at risk assessment <laughs> and how average people yeah. are bad at risk assessment. Yeah. And I think people are really like not comfortable with their own mortality. And people have been really terrified by the idea of like, the idea that going to the grocery store could mean death, you know, everybody's been freaked out by that. But as climbers, and I think it's kind of been interesting that climbers haven't, kind of stepped up to the plate a little bit and shared our experiences that, you know, there is value to risk-taking in life. Like there's, you get a lot out of experiences and things you do in the mountains and things that aren't, you know, necessarily safe, but those are cool growing experiences and those translate to other aspects of life too. Uh, so as I say, like, I wouldn't want my daughter to to live a life of, of being in a bubble and be scared of taking risks. Like I would encourage her to take risks. Um, and I think I'm also maybe have a little bit of a unique uh, point of view on that because uh, my mom passed away when I was 16 of cancer, mm. died at a really young age. I was really close with my mom. And that was a real wake up call at a time when you're not super self-aware as a teenager that life is fleeting and mm. that people die. And that, you know, she was a very healthy person and there was, it just kind of came out of the blue and she was dead in six months. And that was like a sort of, okay, if you're passionate about something, you know, you have only so many days, you should go after that thing. You should do that thing. Like a lot of, and I, it, for me, shifted what I think most people would see as like traditional values of, you know, like having a good job and making money and doing all, like checking the boxes that society wants you to check. I shifted what I valued is to time and the things I love to do and the people that are important to me. And so that sort of like really changed my perspective on the world and has really informed how I've lived and how I've tried to go about living. At least I think so, you know? Yeah. yeah. How old is your daughter now? She's seven. Seven. Yep. 
She's super fun. You'll probably meet her because she'll come home from school. So, yeah, she's, <laughs> she loves loves when pe new people come. To oh, really? House. Like dinners, like new people coming by the garage. She's stoked. We had some friends over for dinner last night, and she's just super stoked. Yeah, that's great. She's really social. What is what does she love to do? Uh, so far. she would tell you she loves to play American Girl dolls. Okay, she loves to ski. She's way into skiing. Downhill. Um, she loves to dance. Yeah, I take her to Eldora, which is kind of a little ski area over in Netherlands. We usually go once a week in the winter. And she loves to dance. She's like particularly into hip hop. She actually has hip hop. Actually, she That's won't be awesome. home. She has hip hop class today after school. She's hip hop class. I know they didn't have hip hop class for seven year olds when I was a kid. I know, dude. <laughs> That's like literally one of my bucket list things. Like, I, I love this question of like, you know, in a parallel universe, what would you love to be super into? And for me, like, I have a parallel universe where I'm a music producer, and then one where I'm like super into hip hop dance. <laughs> I think that'd be so cool. Nice. <laughs> but I'm not either. You know, I'm not uh -huh, either of those yeah. things. But. Uh -huh. I'll ask you that. Uh, I would have loved to be like an NBA basketball player. Or okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like main, did you, did mainstream you dedicate, sports a lot, actually. Okay. Did yeah. you dedicate one of your diamond descents to LeBron James? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge LeBron fan. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I would have loved to be like the guy in the corner draining threes for LeBron when he kicks it to me or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has she caught the climbing bug at all? Um, no, she would tell you she doesn't really like climbing if you asked her. Yeah. <laughs> but she's been a lot and she's been on a lot of trips and stuff. Um, it seems like, I mean, just the one day that I got to observe you, you seem like an amazing dad as far as that goes. Oh, thanks. Like I saw Appreciate zero that. pressure. You hooked her up with this cool swing and they were having, the kids were having a blast. I think she was there with another friend and um, you snuck in your climbing, but it was almost like, she was just hanging out in the woods, yeah, you know, having a fun day out. Yeah, I think climbing is actually, it's funny, you know, like you hear from a lot of parents like, oh, I don't want to drag my kid to the crag and like, they don't want to do that. But you're sort of like, well, what are they doing at home? Totally. You know, they're just like sitting, I think around, I loved and, it. sitting around at home and stuff anyway. So just bring some Legos. and So like, I mean, we've used climbing as a tool and it is such a cool tool for this to travel. I mean, my daughter's already been to Europe four times. Wow. She's only seven. And- you know, met like so. There's such a nice, the climbing community is such a nice group of people. Like she meets cool people all the time. She actually loves, it's funny because she prefers to go to crowded crags because there's <laughs> lots of people there. Uh -huh. So like her idea of a good time is like crag six on a hot day at 10 sleep, you know, just like hordes 40 of people, hordes of people in their twenties who are like sick rope swing, you know, like cheering her on and that she can get to know. And so, I mean, it's been really fun and like, she, yes, might complain if it's just my wife and I and we're at a crag and like we're sort of dragging her along, but she would just complain the same way if we did anything else too. <laughs> and it's <laughs> right, just like right. a fun, t great way to spend time together away from electronics, be outside and travel and go to cool places. Mm. Um, so I think it's been a really good tool that way. Um, and she does climb. She went through a phase, like when the pandemic started and school was closed down, we did uh gym class was climbing class okay. every day for a couple months. So we would come out to the garage for a half an hour. And it was actually kind of ridiculous how strong she got for a minute. <laughs> she could dead hang the seven mil Damn. on the Lopez board. And I was like, mm, finger size may matter a little bit. 
but it was cool. Like I was building her up, but then she since, you know, like <laughs> stepped away and I wasn't like flogging training her. It was more like a fun, just let's go out and have some fun and teach her a little bit about training means. Yeah. Um, but no, she's not really into climbing. It's more just a tool to travel and see friends and stuff like that. And occasionally she'll do an odd pitch and if people cheer for her, she'll enjoy it. But <laughs> otherwise, no. It'll be curious to see if it if it clicks someday. If she yeah. Gets more yeah, I wonder. I mean, dad's been as, doing. as I said, my dad was a climber um, and he took me, I'd sort of like get taken top roping or up some really easy multi-pitch once a year mm. when I was a kid. And I hated it. Like Did I you would cry, your cry first time? and like thought it was yeah. really scary. Yeah. He was a climber in the fifties and sixties. So like I had reason to be scared. His, you know, he had, we would like tie the rope around our waist, have like a couple <laughs> of beaners, some shoulder slings. He'd solo off, you know, bring me up on a hip lay, clip me to some piton and say like, don't move. Oh my God. So like, I mean, <laughs> I was crying for good reason, but, um, you know, I didn't like it, but then in high school, some friends were into it and in New England and just started top roping and really like clicked and loved it. Mm. And so that totally changed. And so, yeah, maybe it will for her, but I don't really, I don't really care either way. I just want her to find something. I just think in life, it's so, it's lucky to find something you really love. And that it you is. Really want, you know, like not everybody gets that. So, and I often tell like friends of mine who are concerned with having kids who are climbers that- the passion you feel from climbing, like having a kid is kind of like adding another passion mm. to your life. It's that same kind of feeling. I think that's why so many people get obsessed and over the top and into their kids mm. and let their lives fall away. It's because they've never experienced that before in their life. Wow, yeah. You know, they've never had that thing like, ooh, I am so psyched, I'm all in on this thing. So when they have a kid, they're like, ooh, I am so psyched on this kid, I'm all in. And I think that's so, as a climber, you can kind of relate to that feeling. Mm. You know, that's amazing, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all of that. I want to, um, get through a few more questions here. This one, this is a second question from Garrett. He also asked the wrist thing, but he asks as a longtime Colorado climber, are there any areas that Josh thinks don't get the respect they deserve? It could be for beauty, difficulty, uniqueness, or any other measure. Hmm. Good question. I don't know, within Colorado, I'm not so sure. I do think that there is a real like sort of what crag is hot, what what boulder's hot these days, you know? Mm. And then there's lots of places that are really good that just people don't visit for whatever reason because they're not popular. Um, I really like Deep Creek in Colorado, which is kind of an off, mm. off the radar place near Rifle. It's just really pretty. It's got good conditions in the summer. Um, and I kind of have a, that's a funny one because that one's been kept off the radar, like kept off Mountain Project, isn't in a guidebook, and all the locals are really concerned about it. But the one bad thing about that crag is that it runs with silt oh. when it storms hard. So the roots get really dirty and mm. they have to be sort of brushed up. So it actually would kind of be better <laughs> if a lot of people went there. <laughs> but it's also kind of special because not a lot of people go there. Got it. About it. Um, so that's kind of one place. Um, and then I think the black too, you know, mm. people like a lot of adventure climbers in the five eleven and under range climb in the black, but only a select few of people come and climb the harder routes. And I think it'd be cool. I think a lot of those are totally worthwhile. Like I think the hallucinogen walls every bit as good as some of the, you know, 
big long classics in Yosemite mm. that people flock to. You know? That's what mid thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Randall had a similar question. Randall writes, it seems like Josh has done quite a bit of climbing in Montana. Does he have a favorite zone or even a favorite route in that state? How about other favorite zones in the U.S. that are a bit off the beaten path? Uh, I haven't actually climbed very much in Montana. I've really only just gone winter climbing there for one weekend. And then I climbed a bit at this place called the Clark's Fork, which is a Montana crag, but it's actually in Wyoming. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best Montana crag that it's located in Wyoming. Um, It's sort of a quote unquote secret place, um, kind of similar to the Black Canyon, uh, east of Yellowstone. Um, There's now some like videos and some things online. So it's not like totally secret, but it doesn't have a guidebook and it's kind of off the radar. Mm. Kind of has Yosemite style rock granite. Um, Really super beautiful place because you're right on the eastern edge of Yellowstone. So there's lots of wildlife and bears and things, and it feels really wild and out there. That's a really cool place. Um, What's the name of that again? uh, Clark's Fork. Clark's Fork. Clark's Fork. And then, uh, man, up until recently, I thought one of the coolest, quote unquote, off the radar places was Crazy Woman. Mm. You know, it seemed like in the last couple of years, like more people started going there. That's in the Bighorns above Ten Sleep. Yeah, quite close to Ten Sleep. Yeah. Um, But man, my family and I had some like excellent, excellent trips and days there because they just recently sort of closed where you could camp. But we used to camp at that spot up near um, where you park for Borderlands. Okay. Like in the gap there. And just this like beautiful meadow cold you could camp in with like a gorgeous mountain view and you could, it was 200 yards to the crag. I mean, we went there when my daughter was two and she could like walk back to camp from the crag (laughs) and ride her bike through the meadow. And it was like, wow, sound of music experience. And that was, that was really cool. And I always thought it was so weird that no one went there and everybody goes to 10 sleep. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a cool, but that seems like that's changing a little bit. And I wonder if crazy woman will wind up in like the new 10 sleep guidebook and mm-hmm. how that'll change it. One thing I learned climbing there too, is that I think that a big difference is that from 10 sleep is because it faces West, like the storms hit it and wash the chalk off. Okay. And so like when you walk up to the crag, it often doesn't have chalk on it. So it doesn't look uh, that good. Yeah. You know? And yeah. then when she puts chalk on the holes, like it's, it's actually just as good as 10 sleep. But, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I think we even experienced that when, when I went for that one weekend, mm-hmm. it just looked like no one's ever climbed here. Yeah. You know? And it's another one of those crags where it's like, it's sort of one of those things like, it's, it's kind of cool that no one's there, but it'd almost be better if more people did climb there. Uh-huh. You know? Clean it up a little Clean bit. Clean it out, travel it, you know? Yeah. I think we hit all of these listener questions. SJ also cool. wanted to know your goals. And, and I think uh, we probably covered that with Freerider. We can, we can circle back if you have any others. Um, <clears throat> this is from Benjamin. This is the final question that I have here. Uh, oh, he's got two. He's got two. How does Josh feel about the newer version of the Scarpa Boostick? <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts on that oh i'm not happy really no damn i'm not happy. i hate it when they change your favorite shoe <laughs> yeah i am like strongly concerned that i may be a 511 slab climber when i run out of the old ones <laughs> yeah I, what did, i'm not familiar with scarpas so so much what did um, they change 
So the new shoe is just, it's just a lot softer. Okay. It's just, um, and I know, I, I don't know, like they think their original intention was to make it easier to break in. The, uh, the Boostic didn't, the original Boostic didn't really sell that well mm. in Europe. Um, I kind of had a break-in period and people just generally like, don't like stiff shoes that much. Mm-hmm. But I think that stiff shoes for lots of outdoor climbing, particularly lots of North American outdoor climbing, are the bee's knees. I think they're like the shit, basically. Mm. And for a bunch of reasons that people don't think about, like everybody wants to feel the holds, but you act in a stiff shoe, your feet don't get nearly as tired. Totally. Stand on small holds for a lot longer. And it actually helps you climb taller mm. because your foot doesn't bend at the ball like it does in most shoes mm-hmm. is because for that reason, your ankle's higher. You can really stand on your toes. And you can toe. really stand like up on your toes and you tend to climb taller. And the Boostic was just amazing because it was so well built. It held its shape for so long. So a lot of the other shoes on the market that people market as like stiff shoes, like Sportiva shoes, you climb a couple of hard slab pitches or hard vertical pitches and then you can like instantly see it. The toe bends up when you look at the shoe sideways. Whereas a boostic is like flat and downturn for the years. Mm. Like it'll hold its shape through resoles and stuff. Um, I don't know if it's true, but like Nathan at Scarpa in Italy says Heinz is working on a super stiff model that's going to grow the line. So there will be another super stiff one that comes out soon. So fingers crossed. <laughs> 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 I don't think the new Boostic is bad. I think it's a really good shoe. It's just, it's similar from a performance point of view to lots of other good shoes there on the market. Mm. Whereas the original Boostic was like super unique. Kind of one of a kind. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Come on, Nathan. His, his climbing career is on the line here. No. I think, <laughs> well, I, think I mean, ultimately, I think really the, the design at, at Scarpa is, is Heinz is doing, mm. you know, and rightly so. I mean, that guy's been behind all the rock shoes of like the last, all the great rock shoes of the last 30 years, you know? And so, and I'm not sure that like good design is a democracy. So I think it's okay that he kind of does that. But obviously when you find something you like, then you might lose out if Heinz decides to go a different direction. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Do you use shoes that stiff and rifle? Um, It would depend on the route, yeah. you know? Um. Rifle's one of those, I think it's, Rifle's a unique climbing area in the sense that I don't think the shoes matter that much, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's like pretty yeah. polished. The feet are usually kind of big and glommy. I don't think they, I don't think shoes matter too much in Rifle. Okay. Versus like Smith Rock. Right. Where the shoes really matter. Totally. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm always curious because with, I find that like you kind of want a softer shoe to get more surface area on the slippery rock, but... I find stiffer shoes help with knee barring mm-hmm. actually yeah, for Sim- sure. similar to like the fatigue of small footholds. It's like you just, yeah, you can just kind of last longer in knee bars yep. with a stiffer shoe. Yeah, exactly. I think rifle actually was a place where I would use the new stick. Mm. It's sort of like a mid stiff shoe, but okay. it has a little bit of that glommy nature to it. Like you can press on it sideways, mm. your toe hooks and heel hooks a bit better. Um, so yeah, that would be sort of like this mid stiff shoe I would use. I think another funny thing, like why people love soft shoes so much, this is total climbing geekery, but it's something I think about a lot is that so many of the strong climbers, like the really, really strong climbers, A, are comp climbers. And so like 
for volumes and stuff. Things like Drago's are really nice because you want a lot of surface area, but they climb in soft shoes. And so people see all the really strong, good climbers climbing in soft shoes and think, oh, soft shoes must be the way. Mm. But the reality is if you're like super, super strong and really, really fit, you don't have to put that much weight into your feet, <laughs> you know? Whereas I need to put a lot of weight into my feet. <laughs> and so like, you know, a stiff shoe allows me to do that. Whereas a soft shoe isn't. My foot will just get super tired. I won't be able to stand tall in the holds. So I think that's sort of like, unfortunately shifted the climbing shoe market towards soft shoes a lot. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you use, I talked with Mikey about this. We geeked out on uh, shoe sizes and he, you know, his philosophy is like whatever I can get away with, like the most comfortable shoe I can yeah. get away with for whatever I need to do. Do you have like a whole spectrum of sizes that you use for all these yeah. different? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, so probably like a full size or size and a half difference from what I might climb when I'm going out doing single pitch technical sport climbing to where I'm doing like a 20 pitch route that doesn't have that much hard climbing on it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes on really long routes, I take two pairs of shoes, you know, a bigger pair for the easier pitches and then a tight pair for the hard pitches. What do you think you'll bring on free rider? Mm, I'll probably bring a pair of tight boost sticks, original boost sticks, and a pair of um, not very tight TC pros. Okay. Which I do get free stuff from Scarpa. So like that's a little bit, but they just don't really make like a, an off width trad shoe. And the TC pro just happens to be like, I don't think it's a very good shoe in general, hmm. but it basically is a sweet shoe for the first thousand feet of L cap mm. that like Bodie turned up smedgy nature to the shoe is exactly what the bottom of L cap is. Mm. You know, it's like you're edging, but you're also going for surface area. And you're oftentimes like molding your foot into a corner where you want the shoe to bend at the ball. Okay. So the TC Pro is like uniquely good for that. Almost like the guy that designed it. Yeah, it's almost like he had some thoughts. <laughs> but it's like terrible for towing in on small footholds on steep terrain. Yeah. Like as soon as it's like vertical or over, it's like... I've watched Tommy's foot slip off footholds in a TC Pro many times. <laughs> so it's just, you know, climbing shoes are tools and they're like mm. one of the few pieces of gear that actually matter in terms of performance. Hmm. Like you could give me a harness from the 80s, quick draw from mm. 90s, old chalk bag. Like none of that stuff would really matter. But if you gave, made me climb in shoes from the 80s, or shoes from the 90s, I'd probably be pretty bummed. Yeah. <laughs> like it would make a big difference. Right. Yeah. Right. This is Benjamin's second question and final question. Uh, if Josh could only climb in one discipline for the rest of his life, which would he choose? Oh, that would be sad. <laughs> but I'd probably go sport climbing. Okay. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, sport climbing, there's good sport climbing all over the world. So you still get the travel element. It's got a pretty big, huge variety within that sport, you know, in terms of like, yeah, going climbing at Smith Rock versus going climbing at Chulila in Spain versus, you know, they're all sort of different sports. So yeah, I'd probably choose sport climbing. I want to, in, in wrapping up, I want to circle back to the question I got from SJ. What are his next goals? And we talked about your upcoming plans for Freerider. We talked about mm -hmm. going back to late talk when you're 50. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you hope to accomplish in, in your climbing? 
Um, I mean, I never really see climbing like, ooh, I need to do this to be done. Like it's always just sort of a journey, right? Mm. But the goals are, are really nice to have to keep you like motivated and moving forward. So I always make those goals and always have like things I'm thinking about in long range. I mean, really short term, like 10 days, I'm gonna go down to Charleston and try that Aeolus Mons route. This is a multi-pitch 514 that Jonathan put up a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah, which is sort of like a poor man's version of going to the Verdon or something, <laughs> that area, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, and that's kind of like a building block for free rider too. Multi-pitch climbing, longer, obviously much harder, little different style, but similar fitness kind of situation. Then free rider in November, then probably, I might actually try to do in the spring, like stick with the, if I stick with the training plan, maybe try to do Grand Old Opry, the monastery, which oh, is sick. the last route there I haven't done. Yeah. Um, it's a really hard route for me because um, it has really high feet in the crux. It's super bunchy and I'm kind of have long legs and not flexible. Mm. So that route just happens to have this like kryptonite crux that I'm can do like one out of 300 times, Oof. you know, um, I've tried to really? like put a, I mean, I've put a quite a few days on mini traction, just trying to like get the best beta for the crux. And I've just never gotten good beta for me. It's one just completely desperate, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's probably an exaggeration, but I've like in three days, I've probably done the crux move five times. Right. Yeah. Like, which yeah. is not good on a sport, pumpy sport. Right. right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but it'd be cool to do that one. Cause that one, even though I've climbed that grade before would feel like a personal level up for me just because it doesn't, even though that, like I'm typically good at that style, that particular route is just doesn't fit me. Where, what's the consensus? Is it 14 B? Yeah. People, people seem to think it's 14 B. Okay. But I do think it's like a little bit of a it's a size, you know, size mm. and body type route a little bit. Um, and then, uh, so maybe that in the spring and maybe I think next summer, maybe going back to this mountain in Peru called Jirashanka, Okay, which has been a thing I've gone to a couple of times. Really cool, like 6,000 meter peak. That's super technical. It's got technical climbing in every genre, like rock climbing, ice climbing, mixed climbing and got the last trip was there with a friend of mine, Vince Anderson, and got really close to the summit, like a hundred meters from the top, oh, but turned around. Cause of weather? Uh, um, not actually for any super good reason. We kind of just turned around cause we hadn't brought our bivy kit and it was late in the day. Mm. We we're a bit tired and the nights in Peru are really long and super cold. And the nature of the route is that you're climbing along this pretty technical snow and ice ridge and climbing horizontally with these vertical up and downs. And so you had to reclimb pitches in the other way. Mm. And so it was gonna be pretty time consuming. And it was like, obviously the next two pitches to the top were gonna to be, you know, like two, three hour leads. Mm. So we just sort of like made a call that it just seemed like a bit too much risk at the time. That's a pretty good it. reason. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there it wasn't like anything dramatic. It was mm. more just like, yeah, it just doesn't seem smart to go for it. Um, but so I'd like to go back and try to finish that because it's a super cool one and it kind of works with being a dad too because Peru's like really easy logistically, not super expensive. Like it's not so high that you need a ton of time. You go there for four weeks and the, the weather's typically pretty good and mm. you know, you'll have good shot, you'll have a crack at it. So, yeah. Well, sick, man. Thanks. This has been awesome. Yeah, cool.
I like to uh, close with gratitude. I ask this question to everybody. What is something that you've been grateful for lately? Um, I'm grateful for my friends and family. I'm really grateful to have my kiddo in my life. Awesome. And, um, and also really grateful to have been lucky enough to climb full time the last 20 years. I feel really grateful for that. That's amazing. Yeah. Killer. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Really fun talking with you and there's a lot of good stuff in there. So cool. Yeah, it was fun. Excited to share it with people. Right on. Thanks for the the questions, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. We do it.